Suzuki can't get it to the net. Blocked by Pullman as they battle in the corner. Caulfield picks him up in front. Scores! Series winner, Tyler Topoli. And the Canadians to the Kings of the North. Smith for the Bees rips it off the dasher near side. Glove down by Pellick. Plays it in the slot. Open as Nelson shoots. He scores! I think they sell a narrative over there that um, it's more like the New York Saints, you know, not the New York Islanders. That, you know, they play hard and they play the right way, but I, I feel we're the same way. And the calls, the exact calls that are getting called on us um, do not get called enough. But Butch Cassidy feeling the heat there or what? That's Bruce Cassidy, coach of the Bruins, saying the New York Saints, not the New York Islanders. He's up against it now. Up against it. And feeling the heat, Ziggy, after a Game 5 loss to New York. I always find it interesting with coaches in whatever league. I I don't know if it's just hockey. It feels like it's just hockey. But they use the media to sway officiating narratives and what they think of their team or other teams. And we see it in the playoffs more than anywhere else. Like, I don't know what, what other sport I'm trying to think of, like the NBA, um, Major League Baseball, like what other sport does the same thing that hockey, like the coaches do in hockey in the NHL? I don't know of it. I'm trying to think of examples and there's, there's not much. Um, I understand what Cassidy's saying though. Because Mr. Trotz, the coach of the Islanders, <laughs> um, he came out the other day, and I don't know if you want to rife off exactly what he said, but he he got upset and saying that he's not happy with the way Bergeron is in the circle and that he cheats a lot and has made you know comments about the way the Bruins play. So I I, I get it. He's he's been in the league a long time. He understands that a press conference like that and something that he says after one of the playoff games will more often than not affect the way the next game is officiated. I think I, I think he knew what he was doing, and I think it worked. Well, here's what he said, Barry Trotz, after Sunday's win. So the Islanders won game four. And I think that that's part of this too, Ziggy, is that if you're going to throw a little needle at the officials after you win – it has a different effect than if you throw one after you lose. Because then you might come off sounding like Bruce Cassidy, which is a whiner, right? But this is what Trot said on Sunday. The biggest thing with Bergeron, and really linesmen can control this, is that he doesn't like to get his stick down. This is in the face-off circle. He's a veteran guy who knows how to cheat on the face-offs. I'm relying on our very capable officiating crew and linesmen to make sure the cheating doesn't go on because he's good at it. And all the veteran guys are. He's not the only one. Trust me. End quote. So yeah. when, did, when yeah, you say it's... it after a win, you sound less complainy. Right? Because now Bruce Cassidy, yeah. a, this guy with a back is back against the wall now. The Bruins are a game away here, and they have to go on the road to the Coliseum, which is probably as intense a place. Vegas would be up there right, right now, too. Mm -hmm. But as intense a place just because they're packing 10,000, 12,000 or so fans. And the Islanders fans are raucous. So they're in a mm -hmm. tough spot. They got to go on the road and win. And, and I guess Cassidy's trying to turn the tide here and see if he can't buy his team 
a call well, or two. Yeah. Yeah, he's an emotional guy. And I remember him coaching back at Portland Pirates in the AHL. I played in the same division when I was in Lowell. And I think Cassidy went back to my old junior team in Kingston with the Frontenacs. I'm pretty sure he went back for maybe a year. I, I could be wrong, but it was there, Belleville. Um, yeah, he's he's a guy you know exactly what... like I The guys that I know that have played for him, Love him because you know exactly what he's thinking. He's an emotional guy, and he's he cares, and that's what you want out of your coach, right? You don't want a guy that you can't go in. His door is always closed. Um, he's an open-door coach. We'll talk to you about anything. Let's, let's you know exactly where you stand. And you can just tell from his media availability days where he's not happy when if something doesn't go the right way. But, yeah, he was pretty heated last night, and I think rightly so. Some of the calls, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's every game. I would say last night is noticeable. I think also we talked to Razor yesterday about the Barzell and Krejci thing in the corner where Barzell four cross, you know, cross checks to the back. And then all of a sudden Krejci just throws a stick in the midsection and goes off. So I think that played a little bit of played a part in this as well. But yeah, the coaches, they have their own, there's all these games within the games and face we're talking about face-offs Well, all the centermen, there's a game within a game. Like I, I can tell you from my experience as a centerman, you have your little things you have going on, whether it's going in the face-off circle, circle early, late, whether you're trying to gain an edge on a guy as they're talking in this case, Bergeron cheats a lot. You know, you try to get an edge that way. So there are all these little things, and I'm sure the coaching staffs have their own thing as well with line matchups and what they say post-game, pre-game, and it 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 affects the outcomes of the game. Like it, you can't tell me it doesn't. Look, yesterday is a perfect example. And aside from the game being officiated the way it was, what made it worse was the fact of what Trot said, what you just you know his quote from the other day, and. I, I think it's kind of interesting how uh, Bergeron, he, he even replied to him, right? He replied to um, the the trots, you know, media saying that, you know, he he cheats a lot, saying, you know, that's that, that's what good centermen do, right? And I, 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 listen, Bergeron's one of the best centermen I've ever taken a face off against. He's up there with, uh, for a guy still playing, he's probably the best I played against. Guys that don't play anymore would have been like Brenda, Brenda Moore's coach in Carolina and Yannick Perot. I think he's mm. development with the Blackhawks right now, but I'm not sure where he is right now, but he was with the Blackhawks for a while Yannick there. Perot would but always, find, until, his, yeah, would they always were find his way back to the Leafs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, yep. So he was really good. Um, yeah. So Bergeron said, uh, he said it was a veteran play. He goes, I think it's more, I think it's a veteran play by him as a coach to talk, to try to get the linesman and officiating to think about it. So Bergeron know, knew what he was, what, what Trotz was trying to do the other day by saying, oh yeah, this guy cheats on his drive. I mean, yesterday Bergeron was still 13 and nine, uh, you know, almost 60% in the face up, which is pretty solid. But like you said, a couple of those losses leading, to, leading to, to big chances and goals. And that's what Trotz wanted. Puck possession is huge. Um, I know it's part of the analytic stats. Well, if you look at faceoffs, it doesn't equate to better teams and more wins, but it's like one of those things where if like you don't have it, 
you notice it in the game. And when you do have the face-off guys, it's like, okay, we're, we're used to having the puck. We're used to running face-off plays. But when it's always going against you, it, as a coach, it makes your job a lot harder. So the Islanders beat the Bruins in Boston and they'll have an opportunity in game six tomorrow on Long Island to put the Bruins away. It is not an ideal morning to be a Leafs fan, Ziggy. And I I know because of the reaction I get on Twitter, like I threw that troll poll up yesterday. People must be just losing just, it. No, they but just, they're like, just, just get over it. That's a, the, I keep it hearing. It must bother get, them so much. Get over it. Well, I said, well, this it was uh, 3 nothing Montreal at the time. The Habs put the Jets away last night. But I, I said we got like 1,500 votes on it, so people wanted to participate. What would the score in the Leafs-Jets series be had the Leafs beaten the Habs? And, of course, a bunch of Habs fans, I can get over it. The Leafs didn't win, and this is grade school-level stuff. We didn't build a radio show around that tweet, but I wanted to get a sense. I'm essentially asking how much do you hate the Leafs right now if you're a Leafs fan? It's a troll poll. It, it's a gauge of your mood without saying what's your mood. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, it would be 2-1 Toronto or it would be 3-0 Winnipeg. Like pe- People are mad at this Leafs team. As we wake up this morning, the Habs have finished off the Jets – Cole Caulfield, by the way, another <laughs> unbelievable mm-hmm. setup in overtime on the Toffoli winner. Like this kid didn't play in games one and two against the Maple Leafs, and he's now one of the stars of the playoffs. And so that's another needle in our side because we've got some guys with some, quote, experience, right? We, we, we keep talking about experience. Cole Caulfield doesn't have any. Doesn't seem to be bothering him. Doesn't seem to be bothering him at all. Oh, but no, no, no. It's not experience. He's too young to know any better. So if he doesn't have experience, he's too young to know any better. That's Cole Caulfield. Where does Mitch Marner fall into the experience versus too young to know any better equation? That's one thing. Then you got lose Islanders who are on the brink of joining the hated Canadians in the final four. Lou and Matt Martin and Leo Komarov are one win away from the final four. And if that hurts too much, well, that alternative is Boston. So if Boston wins the next two games, at least it's not Lou's Islanders, but then it would be the Bruins. And then we're stuck with the Habs and the Bruins in two different series in the final four. It sucks to be a Leafs fan right now. Meanwhile, we got to worry about who we're going to keep this summer. Well, why would you stop? Why would you stop there? Why don't you just keep going? You've missed. Well, a couple, nobody hates actually. Colorado and Vegas yet. Well, if, not, if Kadri goes to the I don't hate Kadri though. Not hate Kadri. No, you know what's going to happen. Like- you know, you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen if Colorado wins. Kadri will come back. Then he'll hit somebody from behind, get suspended, and it'll be the third consecutive series that a major centerman for the team playing the Habs is out of the series. Tavares. Shifley and then Kadri. That's you know that's what's going to happen. Yeah, but there's exactly a lot of there's a lot. Morning, there's a lot of Leaf connections that can are going to be going into the final four. And Tampa Bay Ca- and Carolina. I'm, nobody really. No, no one cares hates, about them. Hates them. <laughs> the only thing about Tampa Bay, and I touched on it yesterday, is the whole Kucherov to the KHL. I, I, yeah, that's that's my. Where only do you thing think you Tampa. think he was just hiding out with Avangard? I'm sorry, you don't get hip surgery, miss six months, and then come back, step into the playoffs against a really good Panther team 
and then just start lighting it up. And then you play against the probably most energetic, fast team in the playoffs, hardest working Hurricanes, and just keep on rolling. Like, I know they got a good team, but what Kucherov's done so far in the playoffs, it's it, it's never, I've never seen it before. Who's come close? Patrick Kane, maybe um, in Chicago the one year. I don't think he played the last 10 games um, on one of their cup runs. So, it's happened, but what Kucherov's doing is just next level stuff. Um, where did you start off the rant? Oh, okay, about the leaf thing. I'm like, I've had something here, you know, off the top of the rant. Um, <laughs> well, it's just why well, I, no, no, I, I kind of no, went through some things there. It's yeah. to the it's to the response to what you're saying. So everyone's trying to say is telling you yesterday, who cares? Okay, let me tell the people that were responding to you with who cares. It's over. It's not over, and everybody cares in Toronto. I am. I, I don't go out as obviously as much as I did prior to the pandemic or prior other years, um, but I have gone to a golf course. Um, I have gone to play tennis. My nephews play tennis, so I, I have gone to a tennis court. And when I'm out, and it's not often, whether it is to get groceries, people are still heated about the Leafs loss. Like, this isn't going anywhere. It might be a small percentage of, of the city, but the majority of real fans are not happy about it. I'm Why not saying they're going to, gonna do, yeah, I'm not, they're not disowning the team, but this isn't go, This didn't go away by now. It's not going to go away. Like, and it has nothing to do with the Canadians going on to the final four either. It, it Part of it is like, for me, we talked about a lot this yesterday, what, what you do and what, teams do after a loss in the series do you still follow them yes i follow them and you kind of compare well we we had a better power play than them and all of a sudden you know their power play excels in that next series well it was terrible against us so maybe we were better in that aspect of it so you have all that but the city hasn't forgotten about the leafs and and what happened it's not this well, is no this year thing. this year this year hurt more than others and I I know that's recency bias but it's different this year I just think the fact that they're up 3-1 in a series and I know I dug it up but it's happened 10 times in 12 years it does happen but the fact that it happened against a team that wasn't very good in the regular season and then all of a sudden you're getting beat by you know I, I, I don't think Montreal did anything flashy to win you look at the Winnipeg series. I don't think they did anything flashy to to beat them in four. Like there's, and then all of a sudden you get to fully scoring the series winner. Where was he against Toronto? He scored one five. Like incredible player. He's one of my favorites in the league, but he didn't really produce in against the Leafs. And I just I I'm I'm trying to for Leafs Nation here, kind of comparing like what other stars do and what our stars do. And how sometimes it always doesn't work out. Sometimes it takes you a series to get going. I think the first series is the hardest to win. Like, I know this is like another Maple Leafs therapy session. I don't know if I need it. I probably do. But I've I've talked about it in other years. I'm going to keep talking about it now. It takes sometimes your stars to get going. And for Montreal, if Toffoli gets going now, uh, you know, I, how would they do against Colorado or Vegas? I'm going to say the same thing that against the Leafs and in, in Winnipeg. I, I don't think they have a chance of winning, but they're not going to be an easy out. I, I'm going to say the same thing. Um, I don't know. Like, 
how is Montreal going to be with rest now? They just came off a seven-game series, and you asked me last week, what would you rather, rest, or would you rather keep playing right to game seven and play two days later? I'd rather the rest, but that theory didn't work out with the Winnipeg Jets and the Montreal Canadiens. Now the Canadians are going to have, what, five, six days off, right? How are they going to do? Now they have to sit around for a week, and you got to watch that those two teams play, Colorado and Vegas, who I've said are the best two in the league. Well, now it's like, momentum. I don't know. <laughs> now it's momentum. I mean, we, we can't. We have to have the experience debate with Cole Caulfield, right? He, he's, he's too young to know any better. He's playing with house money. He's playing there free is, and easy. There is some of that. There is some of that. When you get a young guy and it's his first year, he has no idea. It's kind. You want to know what it's kind of like? So the Caulfield situation and how good he's been. Like, I thought he should have been playing in game one, Cod Kanemi, both of them. And I was shocked when they didn't start against the Leafs. Then they win the first game. Management and coaching staff, you look like geniuses. Um, the whole thing with Caulfield, our young guy, it's kind of like, I don't know if anybody's done a, a race or one of those Spartan races or you've ever done a half marathon or a marathon. And what happens when you do your first one? You 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 crush it, right? I can tell you my first half marathon, you just crush the time. You're excited. Everyone you do after, it's like 10 times harder. Everyone, because you know the pain, you know what's coming, you know what you have to do. And that's almost like when you get a young guy in, in the playoff, they really don't know how hard it is, what they're going against. Um, you take Marner and Matthews. They know, they knew what they had to do in the playoffs. It's almost like they've been there so many times. It's like the pressure was building they know how tough it is, and that can overwhelm you, right? And I'm not going to come on here and keep defending the Leafs, but, um, you know, when you have a young guy, you just don't – sometimes you just – you go into these games, you're like, ah, you don't recognize the pressure. I, there was a coach, veteran coach, that talked about this. I, I don't remember what sport, but he touched on this and how young guys, they just – they don't know how much pressure is in the playoffs, and it's almost – and I said this a lot. I think the whole thing around Marner and Matthews, I think the pressure got to them. I, I really did. I don't think it was a fact that they they weren't prepared or they didn't care or they weren't working hard enough. I literally think you, when the pressure gets to you, you start hanging onto the puck a little bit longer. You grip your stick a little bit tighter. And yeah, there, there was, um, yeah. But I, I do remember a veteran coach talking about how, and I agree with this 100%, is that, a lot of times the young guys, they just, they don't know what situation is. And sometimes they can play better in these spots in the playoffs. Yeah. I just, the, the whole thing with pressure is at some point you, you got to be able to handle it. And the whole point of bringing in Simmons and Thornton and Bogosian, who just won a cup with Tampa Bay. And then Nick Felino gets acquired at the trade deadline. And I know he was only around for part of the time because of the injury, but like all of that veteran presence this team had was supposed to help the younger star players in the room. So I, I suppose you go through it and based on what Brendan Shanahan and Kyle Dubas said last week, and they'll run it back next year and we'll see how it goes. Zach Hyman's future with the Maple Leafs is very much in question as a pending unrestricted free agent. And Elliot Friedman was on writer's block with Blair and Deitch yesterday. It's not anywhere close to a formality that Hyman's back. I think that 
it's a bigger challenge than everybody might have thought it was going to be. There was a report last week that he's turned down $5 million and very quickly that was denied. My sense is, I think as the season ended last week, it was nowhere near close. And there was still a gulf. But I just think that the teams out there who know they who know they want to get their hands on Hyman, and I think potentially Edmonton is one and Detroit is another, you know, they know that to get them, they're going to have to really beat Toronto. And I think some of these teams are prepared to. If I'm Zach Hyman, I'm walking this thing right up to unrestricted free agency and seeing what my market is. That doesn't mean that I'm signing for the highest price if I want to come back to Toronto, Ziggy. But I'm seeing what's out there, and I'm going to use that in any conversation I might have with the Maple Leafs. There is zero point, zero benefit to Zach Hyman, zero point for Zach Hyman to put pen to paper on anything with the Maple Leafs right now. See what your market is, and then circle back to Toronto if this is where you want to be and figure out whether you can come to terms on some sort of satisfactory money arrangement for both sides. Otherwise, he's going somewhere else. Yeah, I and I don't... I get asked a lot, what do you think Hyman's worth? Well, it depends where you use him. Like, if you're Vegas or Colorado, where does Hyman... If you're Tampa Bay, where does he fit in on your team? Is Is he in your top six or nine? Obviously, he's a top six forward. Um, but where does he fit? Does he fit in your top two lines? If you're Colorado or Vegas, if you're Edmonton, where does Hyman fit? He's on your top line. Like it, it, it really depends. If you're the Leafs, do you want Hyman back in your lineup next year? I think he's the most important player. He does a little bit of everything. You can play him with anyone, anywhere he goes, the line excels. We all know that now we've been talking about it for years. The issue is when you get guys like Hyman in this situation, Guys that have really, you know, Hyman's not a guy that just came into the league and found success right away and it was easy to score and the game kind of comes to them. You know, these highly skilled guys. Hyman's got the Kyle Lowry work ethic where a guy like Kyle Lowry with the Raptors, he's, in my opinion, he works for everything he gets. Like, I think Hyman's an all-star. We're talking about Hyman for Team Canada. Is he an all-star in a, in, a, in a sense where you watch McDavid go end-to-end through the neutral zone or you see Matthews toe-dragging in off the power play half wall? Nope. But he works for everything he gets. And his offensive game, like I think Hyman's a great guy for young guys to watch because he wasn't given a job. He wasn't the big number one overall draft pick that you just you get your chance. You're a guy that has to go to the minors, prove yourself, get the call up, try to make a team. Then you got to try to stay on the team. Then you got to try to prove your worth, your contract. You want to be an everyday guy. And then he's, he's expanded on that where he's tough to play against. He's a guy that goes to the front of the net. He's a guy that goes in the corner. And I know we keep just talking about it, but it's not easy to play that way. And the big part for young guys to watch is that he's found a way to be productive on the ice. You can go out there and do all these great things. Hyman does work hard, go in the corner, go to the front. It doesn't, none of that stuff matters. If Hyman didn't produce, he'd be a fourth line guy making the league minimum that might go up and down and be in and out of the lineup. He's a guy that found out how to be productive on the ice, found out how to score, go to the places where pucks go in, 
and he's found a way to make players around him better, and that's Hyman's value. On top of all that, he's gotten better offensively. We always used to talk about Connor Brown and Zach Hyman. Brown was always the, you know, uh, Brown was a similar player to Hyman with just more offensive upside. And I know Connor Brown has had a great season this year in Ottawa, but I think Hyman's taken that next step where I think he's a dangerous offensive threat. He's added things into his game. It might not show up in point totals, but when I evaluate a game and I look at a way a player plays, he's added things like he hangs onto the puck down below the goal line. And I know that's another, like, who cares? Well, playing with players, let me tell you, your odds go up on scoring goals and generating chances when you play with players that hang onto the puck. That's one thing. He's also incorporated into his game. He's great at taking the puck wide, but a lot of times he would jam on in from a bad angle. He would go in the corner, maybe lose it and get in, in a one-on-one battle, or he would try to go around the net and nothing else would happen to it. He's added in a pull-up kind of where he takes the defense wide. He makes them turn. He makes the other defenseman his partner on notice, and then he's learned to turn back up in the play and wait for help. That's something that the high-level players do and make plays off it. Hyman has done that consistently, and it's something he's added in his game. And I know, and I'm not saying I was a Hyman-like type, but I didn't have that offensive skill that all the top guys had. I had to go and find it and find different ways to produce. And I got to play with George LaRock and Oleg Saprikin and, and Phoenix, and we were a good fourth line because... We all, like all of us were in and out of the lineup. And then you put three of us together. We found something in our game and we found a way to get better from, you know, outside of, I guess, our comfort circle. And that's what Hyman has done. He's, he's gone outside of the way he plays to become a better player. And he deserves more money for that. Like what's Hyman, what, what's he making right now? Two, two and a half with, or with three million? Like, yeah, it was two. I just want to get this right because he was yeah. making a little bit less. He 2.25. Yeah. Per like, year for four it, years. Just expired. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. Like, think about what Hyman gets paid. Like, he's, to me, he's, I know he's not a Tom Wilson on the ice, but the value he brings to my team is the Tom Wilson. And Tom Wilson's what? Five and a half million. And I know they won the cup and we haven't won the cup here. But that's where I put him. I know with a flat cap now, it's a little bit tougher. But I, I, I don't see a team. I see a team going to fi- uh, over five and a half. All right. Well, let's five, let's throw years, it out yeah. on the text line. Term and dollar for Zach Hyman. Term and dollar for Zach Hyman. What would it take? Be realistic here. What would it take for the Toronto Maple Leafs to keep Zach Hyman? Everything Ziggy just said. And I'll lop something on the other side of it. Zach Hyman turns 29 years old tomorrow. He's already had a torn ACL and another knee injury. So the type of player he is with the injury history and with the age, this is not the 21 or 22 year old signing his second contract. He's pushing into the wrong side of 30 very, very quickly term dollar for that type of player with the Maple Leafs cap situation. Come up with numbers for us. We'll throw them around here all morning on leadoff. Kevin Barker will be with us an hour from now for the uh, Bark at Barker half-hour segment. Jays into Chicago to kick off a three-game series with the White Sox. They've announced, and this is no surprise, that they will continue to call Buffalo home through July 21st. We've got 
some discussion on that coming up. Marco Mendicino is the federal minister of immigration. He's also a Toronto area MP. The NHL has been granted a quarantine exemption so that Colorado or Vegas can come into Montreal. What does that mean, if anything, for the Blue Jays? Marco Mendicino in the 8 o'clock hour. And Stu Cowan of the Montreal Gazette. It's all ahead. Lead up. So we're getting a lot of reaction on the uh, what should Zach Hyman get in terms of term and dollar. You know, one of the opinions that I have seen in the last week is the, well, why would you go and address the back end when scoring was the issue in the playoffs? And my response to that is, you're the very same person or people who always tells me not to focus too much on small sample sizes. The truth of the matter is this for the Toronto Maple Leafs, Siggy. They are either going to win a Stanley Cup with this group or they're not dependent upon the offensive performance of Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, and John Tavares. So if I'm going to take Freddie Anderson's $5 million bucks, and I'm going to take Zach Hyman's $2.25 million, and I'm using his previous salary, not the one that he will make, because that's what he counted against the cap for the last four years for the Maple Leafs. If I'm going to take that $7.25 million, and I'm going to take from here and I'm going to take from there, and I've got about 10 to 12 to play with, and I want to address going and getting, say, a number one defenseman and bringing a Dougie Hamilton to Toronto for $8 million a year or whatever it would take, I'm going to strongly consider that. Filling out around the edges again, well, you can do that with $700,000, $1 million players. I love Zach Hyman. I feel like I'm talking myself out of bringing Zach Hyman back because you can only address so much with what you've got. We're in a flat cap environment. A bunch of things have run against the Maple Leafs in COVID with regard to the salary cap, and you can't address every need in the best way possible. You, if, if, if this was MLSE in a, in a, in a non-capped world, have at it. Spend whatever. It will be fascinating to see where this goes because... I think Zach Hyman runs this to unrestricted free agency. I think some teams come in in the $5 million range, maybe a little bit more than that. The Maple Leafs will be hard-pressed to get there. And maybe the Leafs will have a number and they'll say, Zach, this is what we can do for you. And then it'll be up to him to decide whether he wants to take a hometown discount. Something, by the way, that none of his younger teammates did. There's a couple things. So I'll start with the first... One, you said, I don't know how you worded it, though, about how a lot of people are writing in that why would you address defense? Now, who's who wants to address the defense? You well, or... Well, I'm saying... No, 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 no. But these no, are conversations I, I've had over the last week. My point is... My point is... Is that... What you end up getting are people saying, well, they didn't score enough goals in their playoff series against Montreal, so clearly they need to address the offense. So... 
why are you saying take some money out of the forward group and apply it to going and getting a, a number one defenseman when it's clear that you can have a pretty good regular season with Riley and Muzzin and Brody and Hall, where to me, like a Hamilton situation added to that mix bolsters that back end considerably. My argument is, is that the offense will be driven. Isn't to say you don't get secondary scoring. We all understand you need that. But it will be driven by Matthews, Marner, Nylander, and Tavares. My point being, this team is not going to win four rounds and 16 playoff games without those four guys, or at least three of those four guys, Tavares got hurt, performing at, at their best level. And the Leafs didn't get that from Matthews and Marner in their playoff series, and that's a large part of the reason why they've gone home. So you can have all this sprinkled around supplemental scoring. That's that's wonderful. That's great. But if the best players who are being paid the most don't produce, it's not going to matter. Well, I've said for a while with the Leafs, if you don't have an, a true number one defenseman, it's going to be tough to win. Show me a team that's won a Stanley Cup without a true number one defenseman. And I can't do it. Like, I, I don't know. what. Give me a year where a team has won has won it all without having that guy in the back end. And I can't find one. So is Morgan Riley a really good defenseman? Yes. I love him. I was in the Leafs organization. I was with him in the Marlies with the Marlies when he when he first, you know, played his first couple games of pro. Two years ago, he was in the Norris conversation for most of the year. Um, we don't know what's the issue's been. Obviously, there's an injury a year ago. Not sure if it's still there or not, but his game isn't where it was two years ago. And he was great in the playoffs, but do you, would you throw him in the category with Petrangelo and, and Hedman and no car? Like, do you throw no. him in that conversation? So if you don't no. then you have to go and get a number one and Brody was gr- great this year. And by the, the way, so just, to, was great. just to jump in on that, it's, it's really important that that question get answered now because he's a UFA Riley is in a year. Yeah. So if you don't throw him and if they don't throw him into that equation and he's not a seven or eight million dollar per year defenseman, what do you do with that? Yeah. Does he hang around at his current number? And it's not that easy to go and get one either. You have all this money tied up in your top four forwards. What is it at 30 or what's the total number at? We're at 40 million for four forwards or somewhere close to that. Yes. So you have half your payroll tied up in four guys it's tough to do it's tough to get what you want I think like as much as I love Hyman and I just went on a (laughs) what I talked about him for 15 minutes in the first segment on how good he is and what he's done I I think it's more important to fill that number one defensive role before a Hyman so if I'm Leafs management that's what I would look at first and I know that's that's not the sexy answer and not something people want to hear, especially when you've had the trouble scoring in the playoffs that we've had this year. But what it does is it just gives you some stability on the back end. And I don't know what the analytics are. I don't know what the numbers are on that. When you have those big number ones, how much better you are offensively. I just know from playing when I've had that defense back there, your job is easier in your own end, and it gives you more energy and time to create opportunities, whether it's coming out of your end, whether it's taking an extra chance. I know I talked a lot about Carey Price yesterday in the last two weeks on what it does to your game when you have that number one goaltender that you can trust back there that makes the big stops. 
while the someone that you can look at as well, if you want to talk about players on your team that allow you the freedom to do what, what you kind of want to do from an offensive standpoint, your starting goaltender and your number one defenseman. And I know a lot of times their goaltender doesn't score. And sometimes your number one defenseman is not your most offensive guy in your back end, but having those two guys back there, those pillars, look at the success of the teams that have won cups. If you don't have that, it's very hard to win. Campbell was great for the Leafs this year. I still think the odd goal got let in that I didn't like. I didn't like the first goal in game seven, but he played, obviously, look at the regular season he had in the playoffs. As a whole, it was better than what anybody expected. But you need the guy in net to stop those goals, and you need a number one defenseman. So until you have both of those, it's really hard to win, and we've seen it with this Leafs team. Look at the, our top four. Like what, what teams have a top four like we have? I I can count on one hand how many teams have as good a forward as the Leafs have up front. They're our, our, our best four players. So it's hard. It's it's hard because when they don't score, you're like, okay, well, we need more offense. I understand what Leafs Nations I, Leafs Nation thinks and that we need more. We need more guys that can put the puck in the net because we couldn't do it. Look at the Canadians. They found a way to win by you know I don't I think it's been their there are four guys in their back end. I know Petrie's been, I mean, who's been Montreal's number one this year? Petrie offensively, Weber when he's healthy. Like, I think any any one of those four guys can really step in at any time and be a number one for the Canadians. That's nice when you have those four guys back there. Edmondson, Sherratt, Weber, and Petrie. So they have that. And you have when Price is playing the way he's playing, they're into the final four. What do we say about Montreal all year? They can't score. Look what happened against the series against the Leafs. Games, games, the first game, they could barely, they didn't have many chances. Anderson had a big goal. They, you know, the Byron with an, an amazing on his knees goal, but they didn't have much in the first game. They didn't have anything through games two, three, and four. And then all of a sudden, they found something. They found the odd goal. They found a way to get the lead. Like, you want to compare offense and what you have? If anybody can play, and it's the Mont- it, it's the Montreal Canadiens, and they're on to the Final Four because they have those guys in the back end, and they have Carey Price making big stops. I don't think Carey Price has been standing. Like, he's made amazing saves, and he's standing big in net, but has he been lights out? Has he been like Hellebuck for the Jets? Not looking at the series, but the, the last couple regular seasons as a whole, Hellebuck has really patched the holes on Winnipeg. I love Winnipeg, but... When a guy plays like that, you you don't really see what the deficiencies are in your team. I, like as good as Price has been, I I don't think he's I don't think he's the reason the Canadians are on to the Final Four. Um, there's a number of different factors. It's Cole Caulfield who you mentioned off the top, how good he's playing. Kot Kanemi was a healthy scratch in Game One. I don't think the defense on Montreal gets enough credit, and I think they just I think from a coaching standpoint. That's been the big difference. Matchups, playing different guys with you know different players, and just sticking to your system. Not, you know, they know how they have to win, and they've done it. And it's 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 not flashy, like it's a not a fla- it's not a flashy game. And I'm looking forward to seeing what two really good teams, you know, in Colorado and Vegas, what they can do against a team against Montreal, who's not exciting to, to watch. They. As good as they as, as they play, they're not like you watch that Vegas, Colorado those Colorado Vegas games. 
they're back and forth and speed and hit. Like I just, I'm, I'm curious to see what it looks like against the Canadians who play a meat and potatoes style game. Yeah. And you've got Vegas and Colorado going at least six, at least six. Yeah. And it's a best of three now with Colorado having home ice advantage game five tonight. Keep them coming in term and dollar realistic for Zach Hyman. And it isn't just Zach. It's factoring in whatever other needs you think the Maple Leafs have. Can they keep Zach Hyman and adequately address those other needs in a hard capped league? You've got to make tough decisions. Stu Cowan of the Montreal Gazette coming up at 710. Bark at Barker for a half an hour at 730. The Blue Jays kick off a three-game series in Chicago against the White Sox tonight. And at 835, we got a big guest coming up. And I mean, like, quite literally, a big guest. America's strongest man in 2017, James Deffenbaugh, the co-inventor of Spider Tack which is a sticky for your hands. This is the guy. It's one of those dudes, Ziggy, who walks around carrying 300 pound boulders for the hell of it in strongman competitions. He and a partner created this sticky tack, this spider tack so that he could better grip these massive boulders. Well, it turns out that this spider tack is now all over major league baseball as one of the substances that pitchers are using to doctor the baseball. So we'll get James Deffenbaugh on and we'll ask him. I just, I just, hell did you know? I I use chalk. Is chalk not used anymore? I haven't been to a gym since February 2020. Is chalk not good? I don't know. You say, well, you use chalk. What are you talking about? Are you walking around carrying 300 pound boulders as a, as a hobby? I lift some pretty heavy weights yeah, in the you, gym, okay? Yeah, well, I was going to say, you probably just lift bags of mulch. Just got <laughs> bags of mulch on the front lawn with a little bit of chalk. So we'll get uh, James Deffenbaugh on. Keep the uh, numbers coming. Keep the numbers coming. Term and dollar for Zach Hyman. in the cliff kickoff round two tonight in the NBA playoffs out in the Western Conference in Utah mm. game six and seven man he set the tone I just wonder with the Lakers out I'll never call the Clippers Los Angeles's team <laughs> just I just as won't it's a Lakers town but I just wonder if the clip is now poised with the Western Conference wide open to make a to make a push here. You got Phoenix going up one nothing in their series with Denver last night. And now you got the clip going into Utah to take on the number one seeded Jazz and Kawhi's on a heater. I mean, this is the Kawhi that we all remember, right? And last year in the bubble for whatever reasons I mean, there's a lot of reasons you can talk about the Clippers and, and their deficiencies and, and why they can't win. 
um, they gave up the whole organization to bring in the team that he wanted, right? Sold the future. So I, yeah, I, um, I mean, you, you can never count Kawhi out. He's a guy that I, I think a big part of the reason the Raptors won. I don't think anybody will deny that. And he's, he's exciting, big, right? He's the, the biggest reason why the Raptors won. Yeah. And, far and away, far and away. End of discussion. And from a rating standpoint, numbers are up huge in the NBA this year. They're up massive, even from 2019. I know they took a huge dip in, in the bubble in 2020, but I just think the fact that in the NBA, can you remember a time where you didn't know who was going to advance to the, like you, you, you didn't know who was going to meet in, in the finals or the conference finals. Like it's so up for grabs. And I think the ratings are up big time. Like, I, I, I don't know. Did you, if they would have lost in game six, uh, would you have been surprised? Doncic? Like I, how good was he? Right. Really good. But there's Kawhi in game six with 45 points, and then he's an assist mm -hmm. shy of a triple-double in, in game seven. I he, he seems to be this guy who is on the fringes but never quite in the conversation. It has to do more with our subconscious, I think, than anything. He's on the fringes of the conversation about best player in the NBA. But when he gets it going, Ziggy, at this time of year, that for me is all the difference. Like this, he is all business. He was all business in Toronto. There was all this conversation. What did he miss? 21 games in the regular season a couple of years ago when he was with the Raps, load management, et cetera. And he effectively said, this is all just a build toward the season that truly counts, the playoffs. Well, he took over. Shouldn't say he took over because Luka Doncic was unbelievable for the Mavericks. Unreal. But, but Kawhi effectively got it done despite Doncic in that game seven. This is somebody who still has the ability to take over the most crucial basketball games of the season. I'm rooting for this guy because, I mean, I said it at the time. I hold it now. I, I wish he would have stayed or at least stayed for one more year on a, on a one-year contract to try to run it back with the wraps, but I don't hold that against him. The guy wanted to go home wanted to assemble a group in Los Angeles. The Clippers were the team that could do it. He didn't owe us anything. And he's a wonderful player to watch when he's on his game. And now, you know, there's Chris Paul in Phoenix. I know these aren't major markets. The Clippers play in a major market, but they don't feel like a major market team, at least not with their history, right? Their second fiddle to the purple and gold. They, the, they're the, the Mets. Lakers. They're the Mets. They're the Mets. They're the Mets. They're the exactly. Brooklyn Nets. I've gone to Lakers and I've gone to Lakers games and I've gone to Clippers games. It's not even it's right. it's like going to Mets and Yankees games. It's exactly They're the like same. They're like the Los Angeles Chargers just borrowing space in the Rams stadium, right? I mean, it's it's a, it's, it's it's a different feel cuz I've been I've been in Staples when both of them have come into play after. When the when it's a Laker game coming in after the change in the floor, the guys are coming in. It's got a different feel it, it, when the player like I just I've been around the players walking in. It, when it's a, uh, no offense to the Clippers guys well, or okay, players, but it's I don't even remember who was there in like two thousand seven and eight. But it's a different feel, there, right? There is just something, and I don't know if it's what we've experienced in the last what week and a bit in this city. But there is just an extra appreciation I have this morning for someone who steps up and gets it done 
at the most crucial time of year. He did it here two years ago. He did it in the first round for the Clippers against the Mavericks. And something that's <laughs> been lacking in Toronto of late. Uh, Stu Cowan, they're celebrating in Montreal. The Habs sweep the Jets. He will be along to indirectly rub more salt in the wound. And we'll bark at Barker for an half an hour at 7.30 as the Blue Jays kick off a road trip back in action tonight in Chicago to take on the White Sox. James Deppenbaugh joins us in an hour and a half. America's Strongest Man in 2017 and the co-inventor of Spider Tack, which is apparently one of these substances that Major League pitchers are now using to doctor the baseball. I think one of the questions we have to ask him is, so, like, at what point in your life do you make the decision that you're just going to haul around 250 to 300 pound boulders simply to see how strong you are. Like how does somebody get to that point where they're like, you know what? This is what I want to do for a living. I want to lift really heavy things for the hell of it. These competitions are crazy, man. When they're, when they're hauling Mack trucks, they strap themselves up to the front of Mack trucks Start to I was pull them. Say that's where I was going. You know, you know when you see the smile on my face sitting here waiting to talk. The truck pull. Ha- have you ever not just like when you see the car pull, you're thinking, I wonder if I could do it. Like I wonder if I put the right straps on my shoulders mm-hmm. and I had the right footwear, could I pull that small car? <laughs> that never crosses your mind. Small car or the Mack truck. Well, they pull the truck and they lift the car, I think. I think there's yeah. a car lift, right? So I just, you just, I wonder sometimes. I have thought that, Ziggy. I, I mean, <laughs> the answer pretty quickly in my own mind is no. But I, I have thought, I wonder if I could, I wonder if I could, you know, drag the truck or pull the airplane. I don't understand where they get these ideas. So the car pull is one of them. And another one is when they have the big boulders and they have to lift the boulders up and put them on the pedestals and it has to sit on them. Yeah. Yeah, Like those are the two big ones. Um, I don't know if this is a strongest man event, but I love the, like the ax chopping wood stuff. Like what's what, like what's that? What are those competitions called? Like like the lumberjack challenge you know stuff? what i'm talking about yeah, yeah like they, I, i'd love to chop a tree i've got well, trees swinging, in my backyard the swinging is exhausting right <laughs> that's the deal this james deffenbaugh soaked you until he booked him and then one of the photos he sent to our group chat just to let us know was the, the big tires like he was he was deadlifting massive like 18 wheeler tires and there were about three or four of them on either end of the bar like it it I can't even imagine. It must have been eight, nine hundred pounds, maybe a thousand pounds or more. Insanity. Yeah. Where, like, and, and I look at that, and the first thing I think is, where are you taking those tires? Like, what, what even yeah. compels you to do that? But the stuff with the tires, I like the tire flip, and how many times, like, that's what I used to train with when I was playing. 
we used to have those big truck tires and you'd have to lift them up and flip them and you do three or four. Then you do like a sprint around the track or you do some other, you know, superset it with something else. But the tire flip was big, just the tire on the ground by itself. And you have to flip it over. Sometimes you jump on top of it. You do like 10 tire jumps and then back and you flip it over, flip it over and then do jumps on it. But squatting 10 of them. Yeah. I, I mean, that's uh, I did you ever awesome. do the, and this isn't a strongman thing when, where you had to jump up on the, on the boxes, like hockey players do that. Don't they box jumps, the box Absolutely. jumps. Absolutely. My crazy, crazy name for jumping up on the boxes, the box <laughs> jumps. Yeah. 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 We used to, I mean, our stuff that we would have to do. Um, I mean, for testing, obviously you do the, uh, you do the vertical jump. Um, yeah. I mean, testing changes on every team. Some teams you do, like I can remember bench pressing 350 pounds five times. I probably couldn't get 180 pounds off the rack right now and hold it up and put it back down. No. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff was crazy. I did as young. I, and I got drafted by the Sabres in 99 and at 18, the amount of weight I was lifting, it's changed now. Like it's not a big tie. Like it's all about speed, agility. How quick can you get in and out checking? Like it's not, it's, it's a different, it's a different game now. I don't think guys lift the way they used to. I, I think you, you bring in chance of more injury the, the way we used to train 20 years ago than how they do today. Now it's about recovery, making sure you're doing the right things. You know, a, a lot of it's sports specific stuff that guys do. Obviously you need the weight train. I think it's important. I still like to go to the gym a couple times a week when hopefully they open it up again soon. But yeah, some of the strongman stuff though, yeah, it's crazy. I'm, I'm, I haven't watched a competition in a while, but the truck pulls the one of the things where I'm like, you know what? I wonder, I wonder if I didn't have my Vibrams on, I put a real pair of shoes on. Could I pull that truck? It's so, going to be a no kind of, for me, dog. Yeah. <laughs> the strong, the strongman competition is not something I think anybody watches like, oh my God, the strongman competition is on at seven o'clock tonight. I got to sit down and watch that. But then you're flipping around and it's on. And you stay with it. It's one of those mm -hmm. accidental bump-ins where you're like, oh, I didn't know this was on. And then you see something that you can't believe and you stay with it. Anyway, James Deffenbaugh, America's Strongest Man in 2017, is going to join us at 835. And it's less to do with the strongman competition and more to do with the fact that he's the co-creator of this spider tack, which is this sticky substance that he used on his hands to help him hold the 250, 300-pound boulders that he would carry around in these strongman competitions. Well, spider tack is now being used by Major League Baseball pitchers to doctor the baseball. So an what? unintentional consequence of the creation yeah, of but, this substance. But what happens if, you, if you're grabbing a baseball and it sticks to your hand? Wouldn't it be harder to throw a strike well, look, throw it where you'd be accurate? Well, but look at the footage of Brett Cecil of the Cardinals a few years ago. He spiked a slider. And Yadier Molina, the Cardinals catcher, got in front of it to block it, and the ball stuck to Molina's check, chest protector. It's all no, over YouTube. It oh, yeah, it stuck. No, it yes, it did. Yes, it did. Oh, no it way. stuck to his chest protector. Like, if you want any more incriminating no, evidence, didn't. yes. We have to post that. We will post it. We, we will find it, and we will post it. Come on. Abso I promise you. 
We will probably like like one of those Velcro things where yes. you chuck the Velcro at the wall and it just sticks. Yes. Isn't it? Like you put you put the Velcro suit on and you you jump off a trampoline into the wall and you just stick. Like to Molina it. Like was those- looking around for the baseball and then he looks down. Oh crap! It's stuck to my chest protector. That's not yes. a good look. It's not That's a bad. good look. It it certainly suggests that there's something on the baseball. All right, we're taking your text to five ninety five ninety. Term and dollar and be realistic because the Leafs have other needs. If Zach Hyman's coming back, what's the years? Uh, what are the years? And what what is the what is the dollar figure? What is the AAV? Uh, we'll get back to that in a little bit. Stu Cowan of the Montreal Gazette, friend of the show, is with us. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but Montreal has decided that they're never going to lose again. And not only that, they're never going to trail in a hockey game again. The Habs haven't trailed since they went off the ice, 4 nothing losers in game four to the Maple Leafs. So do the math. That's seven full hockey games. Stu, I mean, look, I I would imagine that even the greatest optimist living in downtown Montreal, who has been a diehard Habs fan forever, would not have envisioned this. And yet, here we are. The Montreal Canadiens are on their way to the semifinals, waxing the Jets. What has been the key to Montreal putting this all together? I have no idea. (laughs) I've tweeted and and written, like, who are these guys? Or who were the guys skating around in Habs uniforms for the first four games against the Leafs? And where did Mark Bergevin bury the bodies? Like, this is like like two different teams. It's remarkable. I think, you know, I asked Philip Deneau after the game uh, the other night that sort of question. He said that guys looked in the mirror when they were down uh, and facing elimination against the Leafs in game five and said, after everything we've gone through this season, uh, you know, with the schedule, with uh, the COVID, with uh, the Yoel Armia testing positive, with them playing their last 25 games in 44 days and everything else, they looked in the mirror and said, our season can't end like this. Like, we can't let it end. And since then, they've been on this roll, and it's, it's remarkable. As you said, they haven't trailed at any point in the last seven games. They've now won three consecutive overtime games, and it's starting to feel like 1993 all over again when they won 10 straight in overtime and went on to win a Stanley Cup that nobody expected them to win. So it's really, really quite remarkable. Uh, you know, from a hockey aspect, they seem to have grasped now Dominic Ducharme's system that he had tried to put in on the fly after he took over as interim head coach when Coach Julien uh, was fired. It's about puck support. It's about puck management, playing as a group of five, and they've been doing it perfectly since uh, I'd say game seven against the Leafs because in one of the overtime games there I think it was game five or six or which one but you know they were outshot 13 to two by the Leafs in overtime and they still won so maybe that was a bit of a turning point too but this is like it's like two different teams the one that we saw in the first four games against the Leafs and the one that we've seen uh, since then for a team that can't score what's been the biggest change has it been have they just the offensive guys woke up, woken up now to Foley and only, he only had the one five on three goal and empty net, but he didn't really do much damage against the Leafs. Or is it the fact that they have those big four guys in the back end uh, or Carey Price just giving them confidence and holding a team over till they find that one goal or or two goals enough to win? Yeah, well, I mean, hockey players always talk about the importance of confidence. I think confidence is a big thing i think another thing is that the team's finally healthy they had so many injuries this year and the fact they're healthy has allowed dominic Ducharme to keep more or less the same lines throughout the playoffs and i think guys have developed chemistry together 
uh, you know, the fourth line of uh, Corey Perry with Eric Stahl and Yule Army. That's been a fantastic line. That's not a line we saw during the regular season. Uh, they've been great. Uh, you know, they put the Foley with the, with the two kids with Suzuki and Caulfield, and, and that line's been good. So they've got four lines. They just keep rolling them, and they're getting goals from a lot of different people. Arturi Lekkinen was put on the line with Deno and, and Gallagher after Jake Evans was hurt, and you know Arturi Lekkinen scores a goal like every three months usually, and he's got two and two games. Um, so the, the offense has been spread around, and I think a lot of it is confidence, and I think a lot of it also is the fact that they've got four lines they've been sticking together with, and those lines are creating some chemistry. With Stu Cowan of the uh, Montreal Gazette, this is leadoff, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. It's funny, Stu, like here in Toronto with Matthews and Marner, we talk about pressure and that this is the next step in the experience they need to get to ultimately where we hope and expect that they will go. And yet Cole Caulfield comes in with almost no experience. Jesperi Kukkaniemi had... Like the bubble experience last year, but essentially very little experience in, in the National Hockey League and in the playoffs. And these guys are excelling right now. And I just wonder, and there's no way to know this, and I don't even know if we'd ever revisit it down the road, but I just wonder if success, like what Caulfield in particular, Kakaniemi, are having right now, if this doesn't pave the way for them in years going forward. Because here in Toronto, we're watching our young players, they're a little bit older now, but they're still young, suffer with burden. And I just wonder if some of this success so early in their careers will ease that burden in just as pressure-packed a market Montreal. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think so. I mean, you watch Cole Caulfield play now, and it's hard to believe he was a healthy scratch for the first two games against the Leafs. And Kotkaniemi was a healthy scratch for the first game against the Leafs, and he only got in because they both got in because of injuries, really. Um, so I don't think the Canadians had confidence in those two young guys going into the playoffs. They obviously did because they didn't address them. But since they've got in, they've just gotten better each game. Caulfield hasn't scored a goal yet, and you know that's what he's known for, scoring goals. But he's such a smart hockey player. That pass he made to Toffoli for the overtime goal last night was a beauty. And he's quicker than I thought he was. He's playing well in all three zones. Uh, Ducharme's not afraid to put him on the ice at any point in the game. Uh, and, and they've they've blossomed. And one of the things, when, when Kakinyemi, after he came back from being a healthy scratch and he scored in the first game, the fans might remember he took off his glove and he held up four fingers. And after the game, uh, he was asked what that was for, and he said it was a sign for the four guys who were the healthy scratches. And uh, among them were Caulfield at that point and Alexander Romanov, who got in last night. And I think at the time it was almost, I thought, like a sign to the, the Canadians' coaching staff, like, uh, yeah, here you go, guys. Here's our young guys, and look what I can do. And I think maybe the young guys bonded a little bit over that and, each one of them, when they've gotten in the lineup, has performed. Romanov only got nine minutes of ice time last night, but he played really well for a kid who's been a healthy scratch since the beginning of the playoffs. So uh, they seem to have bonded together, the young the young guys, and they seem to be feeding off each other and, and playing like they have something to prove. And uh, they're proving that they belong in the NHL. And Caulfield, uh, you know, he, he fell down to the Canadians as a 15th pick in the draft because of his size. Uh, but he, he, you know, he looks smaller than this when you see him out there. But very similar to Mitch Marner, he, he's he's good with the puck. He's able to avoid hits. 
it's sort of the catch me as you can, if you can type of thing. There was a play the other game. He came over the line and it looked like he was going to his head taken off, just get inside the blue line. And like Mitch Barner, sort of like eyes in the back of his head, and he managed to avoid the hit. And I don't think guys the size of Cole Caulfield or Mitch Marner can make it to the NHL without that ability. Me and Scotty were talking about how you can't win a Stanley Cup without a true number one defenseman and obviously someone who's in net who's really good. Your starting goaltender, your 1A guy. Who's the Who's your number one for this Canadians team? Your number one defense? It's been Shea Weber. I mean, Sherratt's played great. Uh, Petrie, you know, during the regular season was the number one guy. But Shea Weber, you know, he, he's, he played hurt at the end of the regular season. Uh, he missed the last little stretch there. Uh, apparently it's lig- ligament damage in his thumb is what the report's been. But he's been really, really good in these playoffs, and he wasn't really good during the regular season. Uh, he stepped up. He's not the fastest guy anymore, as anybody who watches him play can see. But he's done a really good job of keeping guys to the outside, and he's done a really good job of being physical. And so have all the big four. I've been calling them on the on the Canadians blue line with Petrie and Sherrod and Weber and Edmondson, four big guys, and they've been physical, all four of them. But to me, Shea uh, Weber's been been their number one guy in this playoff run, and I didn't see that coming. The way he had played in the regular season, he struggled. As I said, he was coming back from an injury when the playoffs started. Uh, but he's he's played like the man mountain again, and we haven't seen that in Montreal for a while. You think the Habs are poised, Stu, to show people that the North Division isn't the joke that so many people suggested it was throughout the course of the season? I mean, the next test is obviously going to be, I would say, by far the most difficult. It's Colorado or it's Vegas, and it just seems, especially watching these teams, it seems like it's different hockey out there. It's a yeah, step you above. The, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. It's like another level. It's like watching uh, almost like the AHL to the NHL or something like that. It's just it, you watch those games on TV, and it's just it, the speed and, and the skill. It just looks at, at a different level, and, and you wonder if the Canadians can uh, compete at that level. Um, but, you know, they haven't been at that. You know, you I guess – Sometimes you play up to the level of the team you're playing against, or sometimes you play down. Um, we'll find out. But, you know, the way Carey Price is playing, he let in a softie last night. That's the first bad goal I can remember him letting in in the entire playoffs. Uh, but the way Carey Price is playing and the way the Canadians can roll four lines, they can wear teams down. My only concern would be the four defense that they're relying heavily on. Uh, you know, the fifth and sixth guys aren't getting many minutes. And against a team like Vegas or Colorado, uh, I wonder how that will work with just the four guys, you know, and the, the fifth and sixth guys getting like nine, ten minutes only. Uh, so that would be my con- biggest concern with the Canes as they move forward. But I don't think there's any doubt they're going to face a, a really tough challenge uh, whoever they face in the next round. How sad is a Montreal Gazette columnist going to be if Vegas wins and you can't travel <laughs> to cover that series? Yeah. Well, Vegas or Colorado are two pretty nice. Well, Denver's beautiful, yeah, but let's Denver's be honest. Great. Let's be honest. Yeah. Vegas—that's essential, isn't that essential? No, covering the yeah, team. Yeah, you got to you got to claim essential status here, Stu. Like, don't well, we have him? We have him? We have immigration on in the show later. We'll maybe we'll put a good word in for Stu. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, maybe I'll play, tell my boss to listen to this later. Maybe they'll they'll let me go. But yeah, it's gonna be. And I not I mean Vegas is such a fun city, but I mean for anybody who's been into a hockey game in Vegas, it's. It's remarkable. It's incredible. I remember I was in Vegas last year 
and I had an Uber drive. Uh, an Uber driver uh, asked me what I was doing. I thought it was from my child coming. Oh, he was like, you're hockey. And he started talking about hockey. And I said, uh, do you go to the games? Oh, I go to a lot of the games. I said, did you like hockey before uh, Vegas got a team? No, man. He said, the first time my buddy asked me, oh, a hockey game. I don't want to go to a hockey game. He said, then I went. It was like the greatest thing I ever saw. So the, the fans in Vegas, when you watch a game there, they're really something. It's a, it's a, everything's so new to them that they sort of ooh and ah at a lot of stuff that fans in Montreal or Toronto might just think is a routine play. But it's a, it's I mean it's anybody it's, it's such a fun city but it's a really cool place to watch a hockey game. Yeah, also. just the vibe just seems so awesome. And that like that conversation with the Uber driver that sounds like a lot of chats you have with Americans who may not have been familiar with hockey when they were younger. They say live it's it's their favorite sport to watch. They love going to the games, right? Because it's just yep. so fast fast paced. They struggle with it on TV. The whole mm-hmm. glowing puck thing from the the Fox telecasts in the mid nineties. We we all remember that, but mm-hmm. live they love it. They absolutely love it. And it's great. It's great. And 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 to the NHL's credit, Stu, they got into Vegas early, right? They did. They did. And and you're absolutely right. I think for so many American sports fans who haven't been exposed to hockey, as you said, have just seen it on TV and find it's hard to follow the puck. They don't really understand what's happening. Uh, you get them into a rink once and they're going to go back. And this Uber driver was a perfect example. I mean, he was so excited talking about hockey and like he had no interest in hockey before he didn't know any of the teams were. And and he went to that one game and now he goes as often as he can. But as he said, tickets are hard to get and they're expensive too. But uh, I mean, who who would have thought, you know, Vegas is uh, the hockey market it's become and to have a team so good, so quick after expansion, uh, you know, so if the Habs do play Vegas, it'll also be interesting because it'll be the Canes against Max Pacioretty, their former captain. You bet. You bet. And Nick Suzuki against the team that drafted him and and all of that. Fantastic stuff. You know, we'll be calling on you, Stu. Thank you for this. All right. It's always fun. Take care, guys. Stu Cowan of the Montreal Gazette. Uh, Ziggy said, we've got the federal minister of immigration, uh, Marco Mendicino, who is also the MP for Eglinton Lawrence. So GTA guy, the NHL has been granted a cross-border exemption, quarantine exemption, so that Vegas or Colorado can come and play in Montreal. The rules are strict. Could this help the Blue Jays get home sooner? Toronto just announced that they will remain in Buffalo at least through July 21st. So it's not going to happen at any point in the next six or seven weeks. Marco Mendicino to answer those questions. James Deffenbaugh is America's strongest man for the year 2017 and the co-inventor of spider tack, which unintentionally, from his point of view, is now one of the gunks that Major League pitchers are using to doctor baseballs. Uh, We'll talk to him about the product. And coming up next, Kevin Barker for the half hour. Bark at Barker. The text lines, the phone lines will be open as the Blue Jays kick off a three-game series against the White Sox in Chicago. This is leadoff with Ziggy and Scotty Mack on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Jays are into Chicago tonight. Three-game series with the White Sox. 
So there's a big week and a half worth of games here. The White Sox lead the AL Central. Then the Jays go to Fenway Park to play the Red Sox this weekend. And then they're home in Buffalo against the Yankees early next week. And then that magic date of June 18th where the Orioles start to come into play a lot. And we those ex- are the games. Those, those are the games, and we take advantage. So just keep Watch treading. Out. I hate the word or the phrase treading water, but it. keep your head above it. water for the next week and a half, and then we get closer to the trade deadline and and some weaker opponents, et cetera, et cetera, and we'll see where it all goes. Kevin Barker, the uh, co-host of Baseball Central, alongside Jeff Blair, 2 to 3 Eastern time each and every day. Here on Sportsnet 590, the fan is with us now for the Bark at Barker segment. The uh, text lines are open at 590-590. And Kevin is brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. Good morning, Mr. Barker. Hey, boys, what's up? I heard you guys just say that, that tread and water till the Orioles. You, you think the White Sox are good? They play in the AL Central. You think the Yankees are any good? Garrett Cole's not pitching. You can beat the Yankees. You, got, you guys got to set your sights a little bit higher for the Blue Jays. Beat the Sox? Huh, okay. Come on. Set, set like a little it. higher. The, so the White Sox got good <laughs> pitching, but but you, you don't think the Blue Jays can be better than the White Sox? You know, the, the smaller ballpark in, in, in Chicago, ball flying line to line, that's what the Blue Jays do. Couple of blooping a bomb and, and some better base running and, and some better defense in the outfield. Get some solid pitching. Well, yeah, know. but we know the White Sox are a good young ball club. I think they're yeah. scary. <laughs> I mean, look, Cleveland they play in the AL Central, yeah, first division in baseball. I know Cleveland can pitch, but they can't hit. Minnesota has fallen flat on their faces, and then Kansas City and Detroit. Well, Kansas City is a 500 team, and they've been to the extremes this year. Great start. 11-game losing streak and now back playing reasonably good ball. White, right. Sox are, yeah. White Sox a great team or a decent team? The Blue Jays should be able to beat a decent team. Well, the White that's Sox, yeah, the White Sox are well, going to the playoffs, and we can argue or not whether that's by default, but but people did perceive the White Sox to be a one of the better teams in the American League this year. And that's why Tony La Russa went back. Oh. Oh, yeah, he's the difference. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's made more news than for all the wrong reasons than he would probably care to. <laughs> where where do you – okay, all kidding aside, like, where do you see this Jays team then? Is this – like, where are they in their season? Like, is have they peaked? Is this is, as good as they're going to get? Or is getting Springer back and trading for a pitcher, is there – is there room to – is the ceiling still – have they hit it yet? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. No, I don't think so. I don't think we've seen George Springer enough to, to put him in the lineup. You're putting Marcus Simeon wherever you're putting Marcus Simeon. Bo Bichette needs to be a little bit better with its lower half and, and start hammering some fastballs a little bit more uh, defensively. You know, where you put in the outfield when George comes back, that'll be a big deal. That, that may put everybody at ease. It seems like Randall more likes playing right field. You just see him out there the last couple of days. Now, that could be the ballpark. That could be communication-wise. For whatever reason, he just looks doesn't look as comfortable as he looked in the past playing center field. So maybe putting him back in right field, putting George in center field, maybe that would be a little bit better for the team. Uh, you know, bullpen-wise, Tim Mesa all of a sudden is throwing 96 miles an hour sinker with the 91 mile an hour slider. That's a bigger deal. That that would, you know, I don't want to say eliminate Tyler Chatwood, but now you have more than one option. Joel Piamps has been a giant surprise. That's what it takes. For me, for the Blue Jays to be a playoff team, the superstars on their team and their obvious names have to be the superstar. And then the, 
who's going to be the big surprises? That That's going to separate them from other teams, and we'll see how good the surprises are. But, look, I, I, I will stick to my 90 and 72. I, I, I know they have to go out and make some moves, maybe, maybe get a couple of bullpen arms, maybe trade one of their, you know, precious prospects. How dare you? We have the greatest minor league system in all of baseball. Well, you're going to have to give them up. You, you want to be one of the best big league teams in baseball? You know, you, you have to give up some prospect that you, you may not have wanted to give up two months ago, and I think that's what they'll have to do. But the, the obvious things have to happen. happen. They, they have to have some surprises. They have to continue to grow as a defensive team. They, they have to run the bases a little bit better. And, and if they do that, Ryu has to make some adjustments with the inner half, throwing the, the four-seamer and the cutter. For whatever reason, the last couple of starts, he hasn't had that. He needs to get that back. Ross Stripling, look, you can say what you want. We, we pick fun at Ross Stripling trying to get rid of him. But, man, you, you can't argue. I know it's only five innings, but you'd rather have five innings with one run every time out than him struggling with three and a third. I would rather have that. He's pitching with a ton of confidence. Maybe Alec Manoa can get a, a wind-up. He has for me to have, have a wind-up. That that matters. That, that can add him another pitch because you can tell the slider change-up thing. Is it good enough to be in the big leagues? Huh? Don't really know, but if he has a wind-up, that, that could probably get him through one time in the order just by having that because he has a, a good enough fastball that – you know, by the time he gets second time through, maybe he gets a little bit better feel of the slider and the changeup. I look, I'm an optimistic guy, and and I think the Blue Jays have enough in the middle of that order. And now you add George Springer, it sounds like he's going, you know, on the road to to start to rehab, and they can get him back. You can outscore people, and that that's the point here, right? You you can outscore the Yankees. You know, the Yankees can't score any runs. You can do that, and if you can eliminate them, now you're only looking up at two teams instead of three teams. With Kevin Barker on leadoff, Sportsnet 590, the fan. So Tyler Chatwood, and I think followers of the Chicago Cubs, and I, I happen to be one of them, have has seen this before. Like the outlier Chatwood, for me, was the guy we got for the first six weeks of the season. And he was absolutely lights out, Kevin. And our buddy Chris Black, producer here at Sportsnet, did a, a real good side-by-side on Twitter the other day. Uh, honing in on on Chatwood's cutter and maybe some slight tweaks to the negative in his delivery, quickening things up that have kind of cost him the control of his cutter at this point. Is is this salvageable here? I mean, I feel like it should be. The Cubs gave Chatwood big money because they believed in him. I mean, he kept the ball in the ballpark when he pitched for Colorado, which not a lot of Rockies pitchers can do pitching in Denver, but he just couldn't find his control with the Cubs. And that seems to have cropped back up here. So you're, so you don't think he can be the nine hold holds guy that he was early in the season. Well, what I'm saying is, is, is it was more an outlier to, to have him pitch that well over the last three or four years than what we're seeing now. I think he has. A, I think he's having a bump in the road. I, I think, and I think that's more between the ears than it is mechanically. Or he looks to me like he's aiming the baseball. When you aim the baseball, it doesn't really go where you want it to go. Normally, it goes down the middle. The cutter doesn't cut the way you want it to. The sinker's not sinking. The velocity's not there. But that's not him. You, you've noticed the last two outings that he's had. It's 98 miles an hour with the four seamer. The sinker that he threw Altuve. The the five sinkers that he threw were 97 miles an hour. That that's electric stuff from a from a little guy standing on. All the way on one side of the rubber who can start at some place and it dives off of one place and it does it with power look look i 
I, I understand that he's he's went through a, a really bump in the road here, but I don't think he got, can give up on him. The, a couple of reasons. What well, the main reason is you don't really have any uh, a lot of other things to go to down there. Rafael Dolis, do you have tremendous confidence in him? I mentioned Tim Mesa. I mentioned Joe Piamps. Uh, Anthony Castro has been a nice little surprise that you can use him. He's got a rubber arm. He can throw fastball, slider combination, and throw it in any count. Those kind of things. But highest leverage guys, you, you know, you, you need Tyler Chatwood to step up and and continue to pound the zone. And if he's going to get beat, don't get beat because you're walking people. Get beat because they're hitting you around around the yard. That's why I said it's it's not the other part of it. It's the part because he's walking people. If he can control one of the two pitches, maybe he eliminates the cutter for a while, sprinkles the cutter. Maybe he can command the four-seamer a little bit better. Maybe he can command the sinker a little bit better. Again, it is 97, 98 miles an hour. That's playing. Continue to throw that. If he throws strike one and it can expand, make it look like a strike. This is up to him. Pete Walker can't fix this. I, me personally, I don't think that's mechanical. When you aim baseballs and you got some things between the years going on that, you know, you, you weren't fierce, fearless anymore. You're fearful. And when you're fearful, look, look you, you start shying away from contact. That's never a good thing. Me, get back to it. Here it is. See if you can hit it. If he does that, maybe this Altuve thing. You punched out Altuve and it looks, you made him look silly. Maybe that gives him a ton of confidence where, you know, he can go up there and throw strike one and, and can expand. The Blue Jays need him. Yeah. Charlie Montoyo can't continue to go to these people that nobody's ever heard of before and expect the Blue Jays to go where they need to go. Tyler Chatwood has to be one of the guys, one of those three guys, until maybe they can get somebody in here. Maybe Ryan Barucki's a surprise and he can come back, whatever the case may Merriweather be. Merriweather eventually. Sure, but can you can't count on Merriweather? Yeah. You know, well, what you get from him will be a, a bonus. But he is one of the guys, Tyler Chatwood, that, that they have to be able to depend on and it, for me, he has to go home and look in the mirror and go, man, enough is enough. My stuff plays here. Continue to pound the zone. How tough is it as a player when you have a guy like as good as Steven Matz has been and then he has these nights where he just doesn't have it? It's been such a contrast, right? He's either been lights out or it's been a, it's been a tough night for him. Yeah, as a player, I, it, is that tough to deal with? Where you you're, it, you don't, don't you don't know what you're getting under your starting pitcher? Yeah, is Steven Matz good? I, I, I the jury's still out on that for me. He's a five. Yeah. He's a five. If you have the rotation you want, Kev, he's a he's a four at best. If I'm being generous, he's a five for me. Yeah, he doesn't use his best pitch all the time. On his Zoom call, he said he had a really good sinker. Uh, his last time out, he didn't have his, uh, his off-speed pitches. Okay, well, he should do that all the time. It's you have you're left-handed. You throw 96, 97 miles an hour with late movement to it. You can get righties out with, with that one pitch. I, I I just never have understood that. I've been yelling and screaming that on Baseball Central that every time I watch him, he's doing him a favor by flipping him that little old get me over breaking ball that he has for strike one, and then the changeup doesn't have a ton of sink to it, and then that cutter slider thing that he throws 91 for me that thing that's morphed into a you know he's trying to throw it harder not get around it as much where it has much break to it the slider i'm talking about and it looks like a a cutter to me that's a bp heater it's 91 miles an hour you're doing him a favor stop stop throwing things like that and get after people maybe you'll be a little bit more efficient maybe you'll gain some more confidence maybe you can get away with a bad breaking ball maybe you can get away with an elevated changeup at 88 miles an hour I, I just the jury's still out on what kind of pitcher he is, what kind of just mindset of I have stuff. I'm going to use it until you tell me I can't use it anymore. Have we seen that from him? For me, the answer is no. 
And until we start to see that consistently of, you know, I'm toting it, you're putting number one down, which I, that's my sinker with a little bit of movement, and I'm going to pound every single one of these guys until they tell me I can't do it anymore. It's, very, it's just, for me, it's very hard to take him serious. With Kevin Barker on leadoff, Sportsnet 590, the fan. You can bark at Barker on the text line to 590-590. Are you still a believer in Rowdy Telez? No. No, he he would be one of those guys that if I can get a couple of bullpen arms and maybe a a solid number three starter, I would package him in a deal. Or you know he he knows George Springer's coming and he's coming soon and he's going to be the odd guy out. You can see the at bats. That's that's how they look. You don't take two fastballs not, oh. right down the middle and then swing in a back foot slider with first and second. You don't do that. Like optics at the big league level mean everything. I trust me. I was one of those guys that w- I was a bench guy, and whenever I went up, I had to look like I I deserved to be there. Does Rowdy look like that at the plate? Well, no. I mean, Kev, explain this to me, to Ziggy, to the listener. So I'm Rowdy Telez, yeah. and the scouting report says throw me fastballs above the belt, throw me breaking pitches down below the strike zone. Those are my two weak spots. Uh-huh. Now I'm up. My team is down three in the middle of a ball game. I am the tying run. As you said, first and second. A three-run bomb ties the game. Now, the percentage likelihood of that happening is never high. It's always a possibility, but it's never high. What we're looking for at the very least is for the train to continue to roll along to the next stop. Keep the train going. Mm -hmm. He takes the 2-0 fastball right above the knees. Okay, He takes the 2-1 fastball right above the knees, 2-2. And as you said, he corkscrews himself into the ground, swinging and missing on a back foot slider, 2-2, to strike himself out. If the scouting report says, get me out with a fastball above the belt or get me out with a breaking ball below the knees, what am I sitting on and looking for? Certainly 2-0 and certainly 2-1. So I'm pit, looking for a fastball in my wheelhouse. If somebody throws me a breaking ball yeah. or if somebody throws me a fastball up, I'll do my best to lay off. But if I get a fastball dead red, I'm keyed on that. Like, yeah. what is he sitting on? Yeah, well, that's, that's, you'd, have to have, you'd have to walk up and ask Rowdy. I, I, the one thing I, I know is uh, the, his stance at the plate is very straight up and down. With his front foot, he gains a lot of ground towards the – thing that he wants to swing at when you do that you have trouble getting the front foot down on time it looks like you're in between a ton where you you get a really good pitch to hit you take it sort of like what he looks like and i don't know if it's an inability to make an adjustment or i just have to buy in and do something else because what i'm doing now is not working and if i want to stay in the big leagues i got to make a little bit of an adjustment maybe that's widening out maybe that's using your hands more than your lower half maybe it's you go up early in the count look for breaking ball maybe it's you look right down the middle on a fastball i have no idea what what his approach would be, but I just think he has to buy into something that would give him a chance to consistently drive the baseball in the outfield. And look, there, there has, there's one of the, he sees the same thing that we saw. He saw George Springer running laps around the bases, you know, going from home to second and, and pulling up at third base. He saw the exact same thing we saw. He, he was thinking the same thing that I was thinking. I better get this going because if I don't, when he comes back, that guy that's running around them bases, I'm going to be in the minor leagues. And you can't do that in the big leagues because then you start hunting hits, and that never happens. I I try and do that, right, thinking you're going to get three three hits and one at bat, and 
it, that that's just not going to happen, right? It's 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 for for the Blue Jays' sake, you would have thought you would have hoped that this would have went the other direction because you never want Rowdy Telez hitting eighth in your lineup because he's a big donkey who can hit a home run line to line, and you would hope that he could come up and get a good pitch to hit, start driving some baseballs in the gap, start hitting some home runs, but it's not working out. If it's not working out, when George comes back for me, you send him down. Well, it tells me he's got no confidence because he's hitting defensive two and zero. Like he's anticipating, well, the pitcher's going to pitch to my weakness. Okay, well, if he tries to pitch to your weakness and he doesn't, A, give you the, the, the fastball, which is presumably what you're looking for, and B, doesn't give you the fastball where you want it, then you take it. Like if, if he's competitive in that at bat and ends up striking out, Kev, yeah, I can handle that. It's, it, it's the 2-0 and the 2-1 takes at essentially the only pitch he should be keyed on. That yeah, made ma- such a mess of all of that. Ma- maybe Rowdy Telez is not a very good hitter. Maybe we we are we're glossing over the the obvious that's right in front of you. Maybe when he was up here last year before he got hurt, he was just in one of those streaky times where you know everything was going right. He was got he got some confidence. He was he was playing a little bit more because of what was going on with with Vladdy. Maybe that was just one of those streaks where everything was going in the right direction. Maybe this is who Rowdy Telez is. He's a, he's a very up and down kind of guy, and when he's in one of the streaks that he's in now, he's just not a very good player. Maybe that's maybe that's what it is. And you know, it is time now in their season where you put the best twenty six guys on your team. Right now, for me, Rowdy Telez is not one of those guys. Kevin Barker is with us. Barker, Barker on the text lines to 590-590. We'll get to some of your texts in just a moment. We'll also talk about pitchers doctoring baseball. Sports Illustrated had the big article come out late last week. James Deffenbaugh, a strongman, America's strongest man for 2017 and the co-founder of SpiderTac, which apparently pitchers are using to doctor baseballs, will be our guest at 835. We'll get Kevin's thoughts on doctoring in just a moment next lines open for bark at barker 595 90 here's one from a 226 number kev i'll never understand why the blue jays let justin smoke leave or at least never brought him back he and rowdy may have similar bats but smoke is the late inning defensive guy huh you need at first base wait no i thought chance vladdy vladdy's the defensive guy you need at first base vladimir guerrero jr is the al mvp after what 57 games how are you taking him out in the seventh inning for defense not a chance. I, I, look, look, if there's anybody that's earned the right to be the everyday position player, it's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Everything that he's done, losing weight and, and, and buying in and, and owning up to something that he wasn't doing when he first got to the big leagues, now he has. Now he's made adjustments around around first base, and, and the, the footwork's getting a little bit better. We all know what he's doing offensively. To, to say that, look, it's, I was a fan of Justin Smokes, too. He was very good when he was here. He was very good defender when he was here. But it's time to move on. Like, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., in my mind, is the first baseman for the next however long you want him here. Adam and Guelph, does Guillermo Martinez, so the Blue Jays hitting coach, does he have hitters looking to sit on the breaking ball too much? Too many hitters seem to not be able to pull the trigger on a fastball in a fastball count. 
this always comes back to the hitting coach, Kevin. Makes me. Yeah, yeah. I don't, well, I don't, I, let's let's think about their lineup. Marcus Simeon, that that doesn't apply. Bo Bichette, no, he'll swing at everything. Uh, Vladdy, that doesn't apply. Teoscar Hernandez, that doesn't apply. Randall Gritchick, that doesn't apply. Joe Panic's not an everyday player. Lourdes Gurriel Jr., well, he might be the one guy, but now he's zoning up a little bit better, staying inside the baseball, thinking right center. Ball's coming off him, his bat a little bit better. Rowdy Telez right now is not a big leaguer. Uh, Danny Jansen's not a big leaguer for me. So, you know, you got seven out of the, the nine guys that aren't doing what the, the – person that text that is doing uh, Guillermo Martinez at the beginning of the year was on the hot seat for me you, you when they gotten off to the slow start and they were looking like they were sitting something other than you got to get the foot down in an athletic position you got to drive down through the baseball and you got to start looking for velocity have they been doing that lately they're they're like top two and three in all of baseball and hitting like I uh, you know that 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 that's a bit strong, but there is certain occasions where you would it would make you wonder why guys are looking the way they're looking. But you know, pitching's really good now, and you talked about the the, the sticky stuff on all the fingers, which baseball's trying to fix. That that may have something to do with it. I, I that even more comes to the thing where you have to, as soon as you possibly can, be as quiet as you possibly can at the plate. I, I'll bring up Bo. Bo's hitting somewhere around 240 on fastballs. If you walked up to Bo Bichette and said, "Is it okay for you to hit 240 off fastballs?" What do you think his answer would be not a chance i got to get better at that because of all the things that are going on it's impossible to be 23 year old 23 years old and kick your knee to your ear and think you can get your foot down in an athletic position and hit velocity it's almost impossible it's going to look like it looks with Bo. i'm not saying Bo's not a great hitter he's going to turn out to be one but this is one of those times where i what i did at the minor league level because the talent just wasn't there when it comes to where they wanted to throw it and how many times they could throw it there they can do it here you you have a weakness up with some hard stuff and down with some stuff spinning that's away from you. It's for me time for him to make a little bit of an adjustment. I'm sure he will because he's a, he he is, he's a studier. He's like Flatty. He everything that he does that he's not doing right, he wants to to correct and correct it as quick as he can. I'm sure Bo will do that. But I like their approach now. I, I like the way they they are using the whole field and they're looking for velocity and it's showing. Yeah, and we've been talking about the spider tack all week, and obviously this is baseball's dirty little secret. I think the thing the listeners want to know and people keep asking me about is how are pitchers bringing it to the mound? Like, how are they bringing it out there? How much are they bringing? Uh, how much do you need for it to be effective? And what I want to know is, I mean, have you played with anyone that, that used to use it? No, not not that I know right. of. I, I know yeah. pine tar and, and rosin was the big thing when I was playing. That you know that keeps the ball from slipping out of their hands. The, the spin rate wasn't as a big a deal when I was playing. Why wouldn't they use it? It works. They see their buddy doing it. He's throwing 98 miles an hour with backspin, and and it looks like it's got a rise to it. The the breaking balls have later bite to them, and they're breaking further. You could spin them harder. If you can get away with it, why wouldn't you do it? That, that, that's the one thing. Now, how are they going to police it? You, you're telling me by the what the um, by the umpires that you've been watching the, the first however many games of the season. You think the umpires are good enough? Uh, say a guy that's making 125,000 is going to walk out to Clayton Kershaw and go, "Hey, can I see your hat?" <laughs> how do you think that's going to go? Like, I I just think Major League Baseball is making this really tough on umpires when umpires already got a ton on their plate. 
they, they, for me, need to adjust that somehow, whatever that is. I don't know. Send a guy in before a game and go, hey, you know what we're looking at. You know that we have every camera known to man pointed right at you. If you use something, we're going to find it out. Don't, don't put all that pressure on an umpire. But I, I well, guess at least they're trying to figure out something. Now, how do they get it out there? I'm, sh- I'm assuming they're getting it out there on their hat. I'm assuming they already have it on their fingers before they go out there. How many times, when's the last time you saw a pitcher stick their fingers in their mouth? Yeah. It used to be a big thing whenever I was playing, right? You you would get a baseball pitcher, we get a baseball back, he'd rub it up. Then he'd, then he'd look up and he'd put both two of his fingers in his mouth, lick them so he could rub the baseball up. When's the last time you saw that? Yeah, you haven't, right? Because if he did no, that so, now, he'd start growing a second head. There you go. So that's so that's what we need to do, the pitchers. They have to lick their fingers before every pitch. Well, and that used to All be right? outlawed on the mound. You used to need, well, I, I think well, you, you still you need. Well, you could step off the mound, right. do that, rub it up. Yep. You know, it's it's. Well, well it'll, it, this will just be an interesting thing. It, the word's out. That that's why the commissioner threw that thing out two weeks ago, saying we know you're doing it. Stop doing it. You got two weeks to figure it out. They gave them a, a warning, so that may take a little bit of the pressure off the umpires now, so they don't have to go out and police. You know, these big time stars. I, I don't know. Garrett Cole had hit the lowest spin rate he's had in his last start in forever. Is he well, using it? I have no idea, but it would sure make you wonder. Well, here's the thing, Kev. Uh, so. I can sit here, and I think you can too, and explain the benefit of steroids to the game. And it was tolerated. And I would say because it was tolerated and enabled, it is therefore or was therefore encouraged. And that was is that Sosa and McGuire in 98 and Bonds following up and the Brett Boons of the world, guys hitting 50, 60, and in some cases 70 home runs, helped to bring the game back out of the strike in 1994 when people fans were were angry now we live in a world where even diehards complain that not enough happens during games here's one of the really strong reasons why that's the case pitchers have so much spin on their fastballs breaking balls these pitches have never been harder to hit i struggle to see the benefit to the game right because spin rate is driving down batting average balls in play etc Yet, you've got the Los Angeles Dodgers with Trevor Bauer, the New York Yankees on a nine-year contract with Garrett Cole. They're in year two of that. Teams have invested massive money in some of the best pitchers in the game. And I'm not accusing anybody in particular of doing this. I just assume that they all are. Teams have invested. Do you think the New York Yankees want to pay Garrett Cole $36 million a year for the next seven years for him to be the coal at the end of his time in Pittsburgh? You're no, damn I, right they don't. Yeah, but I also I also would think if you ask Brian Cashman, he would like to have the, the random guys that he's calling up from the minor leagues a chance to give them some offensive production, which they don't have zero of. This is who this is hurting. It's not hurting the superstars. The, the Altuves, the Correas, the Bregmans, the the, the Simeons right now, the, the Bichettes, the Guerreros, the, the, the Tausker Hernandez, they ain't hurting them. It's helping, hurting people like Kevin Barker. Who, who is the average baseball player who's going out and trying to feed his family and has trouble recognizing between two different pitches, recognizing, is that a slider? Is that a fastball? Can't really tell because it's spinning the, the same way and one's going the opposite direction to the other one. That, that, that's the person that it's hurting, and I think that's why Major League Baseball is, is standing in and saying, now somebody's called this out. We've had an umpire, we've had a manager come out and say, baseball needs to do something about this, and now it's... You know, offenses are down because one through nine doesn't have a chance. The superstars have a chance, 
but one through nine doesn't. And that's, I think, why Major League Baseball is going to step in. And, and hopefully this at least calms it down a little where, where you know, you can tell the difference between pitches. It, was that a slider? Was that a breaking ball? I have no idea. It's spinning all, all, every one of them are spinning the same way. That's that's the thing where, you know, if you're a normal fan and you're watching a baseball game, you'd at least like to be able to tell the difference in these pitches, right? Thursday, 7.30, pal. We'll look forward to it. The Blue Jays against the, meh, White Sox. No. Let's hope for, let's hope, let's hope. The Jays need to have a good week and a half here, and then the schedule gets somewhat manageable. You want to be the best? You got to beat the best. Little Ric Flair Mm. there, hey? You want to be the man? You got to beat the man. There it is. We'll be listening at 2 o'clock to you and Blair. Thanks, pal. Okay. Have a good day, everybody. Kevin Barker, the co-host with Jeff Blair at Baseball Central. 2 o'clock this afternoon and each and every weekday on Sportsnet 590. The Fan and Kevin is with us at 7.30 for the full half hour each Tuesday and Thursday here on Leadoff. Kevin brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. Marco Mendicino is the Federal Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. He is an MP uh, in the GTA. The federal government has granted a quarantine exemption to either the Colorado Avalanche or Vegas Golden Knights for their third-round playoff series against the Montreal Canadiens. What could, and I underline the word could, that mean for the Blue Jays? And I'm wondering if he can get me my last passport back because it got damaged and they wouldn't return it to me. Very important questions. <laughs> but why not Why not bring personal issues to the air right there? I like that. Mr. Minister, can you please get me my passport? Marco will be along in uh, about 15 minutes. David Amber on the other side. Here's what we're talking about this morning on leadoff. Sportsnet 590. The fan, the Islanders built a 5-2 lead over the Bruins and then held on to beat Boston 5-4 in front of more than 17,000 fans in Boston. The Isles have a three games to two lead and can close it out on home ice and advance to the final four with a victory tomorrow night. The Habs sweep away the Winnipeg Jets 3-2. The final score, the Habs will play on the road in game one, either Colorado or Vegas in game five of that Colorado Vegas series goes tonight. It's a game you can watch on Sportsnet. Earlier, the Lightning in Game 5 looked to put away the Carolina Hurricanes Tampa Bay with a three-games-to-one series lead. That's a 6.30 puck drop also on Sportsnet. Blue Jays were off last night, as was essentially all of the American League East. They are in action tonight, kick off a road trip in Chicago against the White Sox. Three-game series. All right, here he is, David Amber, one of the hosts of the NHL on Sportsnet. David? So Montreal sweeps Winnipeg. That naturally hurts a Toronto Maple Leafs fan's heart and feelings. Meanwhile, Lou Lamorello's New York Islanders are one win away from advancing like the Habs just did to the Final Four. And if that bothers us at all, well, it should bother us less than the alternative, which would be for the Boston Bruins to come back and beat Lou Lamorello's New York Islanders to advance to the Final Four. It is not a happy time in Leafs land right now as we sit back and discuss the term and dollar on Zach Hyman's next contract while a bunch of other teams are still playing. This should be the day that we are talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs going into the Final Four, not the Montreal Canadiens. I was I was warned that someone peed in your cornflakes this morning, so now I'm I'm ready for it. Uh, yeah, it, it, <laughs> urine would have been a happier alternative. Would have been like the Boston Bruins alternative. Anyway, fire away. 
Yeah, it, listen, it's a tough time. Uh, we were actually talking about this last night, you know, off there, a few of us just, you know, if you're Edmonton Oilers, if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs, you're probably going, man, oh, man. Um, you, you know, I'll, I'll go back. It just sort of, the opportunity was there. Uh, the situation was right. And kudos to Montreal. They've taken full advantage of, of, of getting on a hot streak with the right personnel and the hot goaltender and and maybe the right style of play as well and some puck luck thrown in and they've they've you know been able to ride this wave of momentum and it's pretty wild and you really are starting to see this and ron said this you know on air last night it, there is a feel like a little bit of that 93 feel where patrick waugh and you know they won what 11 games in a row in the playoffs and there was what 10 overtime wins you know it's just it's feeling a little bit it's getting that feel a little bit and i'm not going to overstate it because we all know they're going to be going up against either vegas or colorado and they're going to be the prohibitive underdog and that would be a you know monumental uh you know achievement to knock off one of the top two teams in the league this year but it does feel like a little bit like the north division ended with a thud um you know not because the Habs won, but because this was a team that struggled so mightily just to make the playoffs, you know, 18th in the NHL, barely, you know, their last team to qualify for the playoffs, as Chris Cuthbert said last night, and the, and the first team to advance to the, to the final four. Uh, it, it felt strange. And the fact that they did it in this crazy fashion, never trailing in the series against the Jets and really, you know, dominating Winnipeg in every facet of the game uh, after Winnipeg, was so good against Edmonton, and, and no one really saw this coming. Yeah, some people thought Montreal could beat Winnipeg, but they didn't think they were going to sweep them. And really not that many people in the hockey community, and I know we're taking a lot of crap for this, you know, all the Sportsnet analysts and commentators picking Toronto. Uh, you know, quite frankly, it, it wasn't just the Sportsnet analysts. You know, you, you can go across the board and talk to anyone in the hockey world. There wasn't a lot of people saying, yeah, Montreal – a team that barely well, slipped into the playoffs was was going to knock off the Leafs. So yeah, that's, it's just been surprising. David, that's an indictment of the Leafs, not an indictment of the people who made predictions. Mm. Well, the Leafs should have won that series. I mean, it's that it's just the bottom line. It's it, it, the simplest way yes. I can put it. Yes. Uh, listen, a good team would have found a way to close out that series. I mean, we heard as much from from Brendan Shanahan. I mean, he conceded without without destroying all of his personnel uh, and, and decisions that he and the executive team made, you know, he basically said, we lacked that killer instinct. We need to find that killer instinct. And that was supposed to have been resolved in the off season last off season. That was supposed to be resolved by bringing in, you know, a, a slew of veterans. And then at the trade deadline, adding a Nick Foligno, having enough grit, uh, uh, enough sort of gumption, enough uh, experience to get past that sort of mental hurdle. And what happened? In game five, they get to a 3 nothing deficit. In game six, they come out 2 nothing deficit. In game seven, a 3 nothing deficit. And they finally score a goal in the last minute, a meaningless goal. So you're absolutely right, Scott. And I, I think a lot of Leafs fans are sitting there wringing their hands and saying, how could this have happened? This should be us. You know, we would have done to Winnipeg what Montreal just did to Winnipeg. And we would be staring down uh, a Final Four appearance. And we would be thinking about a Stanley Cup. So... There's a lot of envy. There's a lot of anger. 
And this is going to be a really huge offseason for the Leafs. I think, you know, there's some massive, massive decisions to make, not just about the UFAs and are they, how much they're going to want to pay Zach Hyman, but what's the direction, you know? Can it work with this, you know, with this setup under the salary cap, which they had thought was going to go to 84 million and 86 million and 90 million uh, as these $11 million deals were, were, were growing? And it's not going to be the case. It's going to be 81.5 million for the indefinite future from, from all accounts. And maybe that changes the complexion of how they have to do business and the, and the contractual structure of their roster. Yeah, and we're, we've been talking about it since they got knocked out, and we'll probably continue to talk about it for the next couple of months. But what, what is that most important next move for the Leafs? Is it making sure you sign Hyman? Is it getting the number one D? Is it finding another goaltender? Is it adding more offense? What is it for you? <laughs> Maybe all those things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, it wasn't, it wasn't one problem. I mean, uh, it's so funny because when you, you again you looked at how the team performed during the regular season, it looked like they had checked all those boxes, right? Mm-hmm. It really did look mm-hmm. like whether we were duped or, or you know, you know, I don't you don't want to overstate something, but you know, Kevin Bieksa in a way, you know, called it out a little bit in February, and he said, you know, Montreal is really constructed to win playoff games, and Toronto's constructed to have a great regular season, and I that sounds like such a simple thing. But when push came to shove and the Leafs had a chance to, to to move on and get, you know, exercise all those playoff demons and move to the next round, they just couldn't get it done. I I don't know. I'm, I'm certainly not smarter than the hockey executives running the Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't know. They've got to figure out those answers. Uh, but when you, when you look at it, you know, you know, Jack Campbell, can he be the number one guy? Do you trust that? Yeah, that's a massive question. He looked very good, and, and certainly he wasn't the reason the Leafs lost the series. Uh, you know, you, you want to start going through it. What the heck happened to the power play? You know, the power play was supposed to be the team's strength, and for the first 27 games, they were first in the National Hockey League, and in the last 30-plus games, including the playoffs, they were dead last in the National Hockey League. How does that happen, right? How does that happen to a team that considers itself a Stanley Cup contender? It doesn't happen, right? Uh, you know, defensively, they were much stronger. Jake Muzzin goes down, and it's, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. So, I, I, again, I don't have those answers. There's just so many questions there. Um, and, and maybe, again, the biggest one is, can you survive in the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs with three guys making more than $11 million in a flat cap era, which is what we are now in? Can that work when right now the only player making more than $10 million in the playoffs is Carey Price? Period. So, consider, you know, factor that in, right? Maybe you can't have three eleven, you know, three eleven million dollar guys playing on the same team. Maybe it can't happen, and it just can't work because you have to spread yourself too thin uh, outside outside of those three. And maybe you put too much pressure on those three to be superstars, and they lost one of them in the first game of the playoffs. So maybe that's the problem. With David Amber on leadoff, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet Central had a, a great graphic on. I was watching bright and early this morning as I was having my breakfast. So the the Canadians become, I believe, and this is dating back a good 15 to 20 years, the sixth consecutive team. God, I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that I describe this properly. The sixth consecutive team to have come out of a seven-game series – uh-huh. And beaten the team that had pl- that had swept its previous opponent. 
So, of course, Winnipeg swept Edmonton. The Habs played a seven-game series against the Leafs. Like, this is the 03 Devils beating the Anaheim Mighty Ducks in the Stanley Cup final are an example. The 03 Devils went to a seven-game Eastern Conference final against the Ottawa Senators and beat them. The Mighty Ducks of Anaheim swept, I believe, the Minnesota Wild in the 03 Western Conference final. So, here we have the possibility... And quite potentially a strong one, given that it's a best of three now between Colorado and Vegas, that Colorado or Vegas could be a seven-game series. The winner will then play a Habs team that swept its previous opponent. I just wonder, that aside, David, where you think Montreal stacks up against a Colorado or a Vegas team that pretty clearly has been playing at a different level for a much longer period of time. There's just something different about that 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 Western brand of hockey. We've been talking about it all year. Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the rest versus rust notion was really put to, to task in this in this uh, round Winnipeg and Montreal because Winnipeg got all this momentum and it seemed to just disappear. And I'll give Ron McLean a lot of credit. Within five minutes of that first game, Montreal and Winnipeg, you know, we're all watching the games. He says, wow, Winnipeg's just not moving their feet. They just, they're stuck. You know, they, they lost a bit of their mojo. And, and they did. And they looked slow in that game. And Montreal had the momentum and, you know, had the juju going from their seventh game victory against Toronto. And, you know, we all know what happened with Shifley and everything else. And next thing you know, you know, Montreal's got a, a commanding lead in the series. So will this time off help or hurt Montreal is the question. I actually think this time off will help simply because of a few things. First of all, Jeff Petrie, who's a very pivotal player on the team, was hurt. This gives him time to heal. Dominic Ducharme says he expects him back, if not for game one, then for very early in this next round series. So that's very important. Secondly, you know, last night was game 11 in 19 nights for Montreal. No one had a worse schedule down the stretch in the regular season than Montreal, except for Vancouver, because of their COVID delay. So Montreal had this crazy stretch uh, of games down, down the, the stretch, which maybe, maybe in a way carried them some momentum into the Toronto series. But they do need some time to sort of, I think, rest up. They looked a little tired, even though they won last night to me. So I think the rest will help Montreal. And I think they're sitting there going to watch tonight and hope that these two teams continue to beat the crap out of each other, which they've been doing. It's been an incredible series. And there's been some, some, you know, some, some injuries and some attrition to that series. Uh, Janmark was, was knocked out uh, in, in game one by the Ryan Graves hit, and he's a, a, a key guy for, for Vegas who's been knocked out. So they're hoping there's going to be some more attrition. So, uh, you know, how Montreal stacks up, it doesn't look so favorable, Scott. I mean, it just doesn't, right? I mean, I mean these are the two best teams in the National Hockey League alongside Tampa Bay in, in everyone's estimation. Having said that, you know, a lot can happen in the next two or three games that could cause some pain and some bumps and some bruises and some attrition. And Montreal could take full advantage. They're going to be rested. They're going to be ready to go. So I think it adds an extra layer. And here's what I love about it, guys. There's some great storylines here. We all forget that Colorado is the former Quebec Nordiques. <laughs> and I hope mm-hmm. they wear those outside retro, you know, reverse retros. Uh, which would be phenomenal. It would be such a good look to see that team in Montreal go toe-to-toe and they're wearing the Florida Lee. Uh, Max Pacioretty on Vegas, their former captain. Marc-Andre Fleury going back to his home province. So there's a lot of good stories, whether it's Vegas or Colorado, moving into the next round versus Montreal, which is pretty exciting. And stick Patrick Wan a luxury box and then just pan the camera over to him every two minutes. That would be, that would be pretty oh, good as well. 
All right, uh, David, Ziggy needs some help with his passport, so we're going to let you go because we have the uh, Federal <laughs> Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship uh, on the phone line. So uh, we appreciate your time, and uh, you know we'll have you back very soon. Wow, that's a big jet. All right, I'm, I'm going to be tuning in. I want to hear what they're saying. <laughs> All right. David Amber of Hockey Night in Canada, the NHL on Sportsnet, and of Hockey Central. And uh, here he is, the aforementioned Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. He is the MP uh, for the Toronto riding of Eglinton Lawrence. Marco Mendicino is uh, with us. Uh, Mr. Minister, thank you for your time this morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. I brought an application uh, for the renewal of his passport. So <laughs> yeah, that out right now, if you want. Now, just no, just to be cl- no, no, I'm cutting you off, Ziggy. Just to be oh. clear, don't give this guy any favoritism. If it's expired, he doesn't get to do the fast track deal. Full photo, no, full no, deal, just, all I, of it. I just said I just brought the application. I didn't say fast track. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not asking for any any special treatment here. No, no, no. Whoa, this is getting blown up. All I'm saying is I had a damaged passport. I brought it in, and they wouldn't give it back to me. I was like, I, but I went traveling for a couple of years. I got all these passport stamps and visas. I said, hey, you got to well, follow I, the rules. You got to follow the rules they, like everybody else, guys. Yeah, and I said, and I said, well, it, I, I'm, I'm not going to use it anywhere. They said, no, it's a di- your your the photo on the passport's damaged. We can't give it back to you. Um, they said the, the photo call, on the, the passport is damaged because it's you with hair. <laughs> that doesn't even true. look like you anymore. That is true. That's the damage. <laughs> okay, a lot of damage. We all need a haircut. We all need a haircut. All right, good Mr. Mitt. you guys. Yeah, it's good to be with you. So uh, let, let's discuss this. Um, there has been a quarantine exemption given uh, to, well, as it turns out, the Montreal Canadiens' next opponent and perhaps the one after that as well. So they will play either the Colorado Avalanche or the Vegas Golden Knights in the semifinals and games three and four and six, a will or would be played in Montreal. Uh, let's, let's start here. What is the protocol? What are the protocols uh, per the arrangement that the Avalanche or the Golden Knights will have to follow as they enter Canada? Well, the protocol is uh, going to be captured under the national interest exemption. And just before I unpack it a bit, I just want to say that we take these uh, decisions very seriously. You guys will recall last year we came on to talk about baseball and we had to say no at the time. But there are a few differences uh, this time around. One, we got sign-off from public health care officials at every level of government. So federal, provincial, and municipal, I want to thank Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta, and Quebec, where the aforementioned uh, Montreal Canadiens are now moving on to the semis. Second, uh, we looked at the plan, and the NHL put forward a very solid plan. They've been a good partner throughout COVID. Uh, They have an elaborate and comprehensive protocol. They've never been afraid to enforce it. You guys will recall when the Vancouver Canucks had an outbreak, they shut it down. And so going forward, what we have in the playoffs is a very strict plan around quarantining. In fact, there still will be a quarantine. It'll be modified for work, but they're going to have to bubble between the arena and the hotel and nowhere else, plus pre-arrival and post-arrival daily testing. And the third factor was we've come a long way from last summer. Canada is now number one in the G20 when it comes to vaccinations for first doses and second doses are really accelerating. And that's thanks to our frontline workers and Canadians. And so as a result, we were able to move forward with a positive decision, and now 
people are going to be able to enjoy some playoff hockey, which is a huge Canadian pastime, while keeping everybody safe. Yeah, and I I understand there's a lot of people that think this is unfair, and I understand that, and I see their point of view, but as a former player, even prior to the pandemic, there's very little interaction you have with people in a city that you fly into. It's private planes, you're on your own bus, you go right to your hotel, it's on the bus to the rink, and it's either right back to the hotel for another game, or you go back to the airport on your private plane, and that's I think it's tough for, you know, the players aren't getting on commercial flights and you're not going to be out in the malls. You don't go out into the restaurants. And I, I feel like this is the right decision. But at the same time, I I kind of understand how a lot of people I, I have friends with, you know, don't have essential businesses. They're, they're saying, well, I can't fly and I, I have to quarantine for two weeks. And that's just not fair for me. But I said it's a little bit different when you have teams coming in on, you know, with their own means and their own private planes and their own charter buses and their own, their own hotels. And I'm guessing they're going to have their own floors to themselves in, in hotels. Yeah, it's very tight. You're a hundred percent right about that when it comes to this protocol, but at the same time, look, it has been tough for people. Uh, you know, the pandemic has made traveling uh, virtually uh, impossible, except if it's essential, but notwithstanding that, you know, we've been able to reunite families. Uh, and I know that um, over the course of the last uh, year or so, um, my department's processed over 75,000 family reunification applications. And we've been able to reunite those people in a safe and orderly fashion. So we have been able to, I think, show some compassion despite the challenges that have been posed by the pandemic. And I would just circle back to the uh, the original point, and it's one that you laid out in, in some detail, which is that there's still a quarantine in place. Yes, it's modified, but it's modified for work. The players who come to Canada have to go straight to the hotel and from the hotel, they go through their testing protocol and then straight to the arena to play and then back to the hotel. And that's that's the plan. And that's one of the reasons why we were our, our, our healthcare officials were confident in signing off on this. And plus, the league takes this very seriously. You know, I had a number of conversations with uh, with Bill Daly, and I think both him and his entire team at the league understand the responsibility that they have undertaken to ensure that we can have hockey but do it in a way that's safe for everybody. And that's why we were able to take this decision going forward. Marco Menducino is the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. This is leadoff Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm wondering, Mr. Minister, if you can characterize the nature of the discussions, particularly with the Toronto Blue Jays right now, understanding, of course, that the Jays would be welcoming in any given homestand two American-based teams for three days, typically at a time, maybe if it's a 10-game homestand, three American-based teams. Obviously, Blue Jays players, if they were to come back to Toronto, would be subject to, to strict rules themselves. The Jays have announced that they are remaining in Buffalo until at least July 21st. But where are you at with those conversations with the Blue Jays, and what's the nature of them at this point? I think the best way to characterize them, Ziggy, is to call them preliminary. Um, we've had some initial discussions around uh, what a plan would look like, but I want to make a couple of things clear. Uh, first, as you recall, um, last year we had to say no, and it just goes to show how seriously we take these decisions. The second thing I would say is that we're going to evaluate the proposal that will be put forward by the Jays uh, and by the MLB 
um, on a case by case basis. We'll look at the uh, the plan that they they put on the table, uh, but there are some I think some elements. Um, that we have seen that have worked in other cases. So, for example, strict quarantining and bubbling, um, daily testing, uh, making sure that there's tracing protocols in place. Um, and those are precisely the main kind of categories that our public health care officials will go over with a fine-tooth comb. And it won't even uh, get to my desk unless there is sign-off from every level of government. So we would need federal, provincial and municipal uh, before we would exercise any kind of a decision in the same way that we have for the NHL. So it's preliminary, but I imagine those discussions are going to continue. What role does vaccination, not vaccination of the public, but vaccination of the players play in this? There's there's still some things I think we're learning about this virus, Mr. Minister, that we, you know, children are not... Um, able to be vaccinated yet teens are but not not children and so it's still possible to transmit but what role does does vaccine uh, play in this and and the percentage of players on these teams that have been vaccinated I think a very significant role I mean vaccinations have been the medical miracle of this pandemic Uh, the fact that we've been able to develop a a number of vaccinations and have approved them uh, the fact that Canada's got uh, the largest, most diversified portfolio in the world per capita, I think, is a source of great confidence. The fact that Canada is now number one in the G20 uh, when it comes to vaccinations is a very strong signal that I think here at home we take vaccinating uh, very seriously. Uh, But at the same time, as you point out, um, there are a number of different variables that we're going to look at. uh, And and one of the other ones is where is the rest of the world at? Um, And and also keeping an eye out for variants and making sure that we follow the advice of healthcare officials on any of those developments. So vaccinations feature prominently into these decisions, but they're not the only factor. Uh, and, and we do have to take a look at the plans that are put forward by the leagues, the professional sports that are asking for uh, entry into Canada to play their game. And as I said, when you've got a strong partner like the NHL, uh, you can do good things. Uh, And I think that, um, you know, we have often said that where we have strong partners, we'll work with them. uh, But it has to be a precondition that healthcare officials will sign off before we uh, we look at the decision. Uh, Mr. Mendicino, we appreciate your time this morning. And, and, you know, you kind of got cornered at the start of the interview. So if if there is a possibility to revoke somebody's citizenship for... for, (laughs) for, I'm I'm calling the office right after. Before I let you go, I've got a I've got a dream that next year we're on talking about the Leafs. Okay, I mean I, whether it takes like a best of nine, best of eleven, best of thirteen, like as a fan, I'm telling you, go Leafs go next year, please, guys. We can do this. We're uh, we'll work on it. We're, we're counting on it. on it. We're <laughs> counting on it. We'll have you on again as as updates are needed. Thank you so much for your time again this morning. All right, have a good one. Take care, guys. Uh, Marco Mendicino is the Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. He is the MP for Eglinton Lawrence. Something to chew on brought to you by Great Canadian Meat, Ziggy, is uh, the fact that, you know, vaccines will play a role in this, but it's it's a little different for the Blue Jays, I think, because of the number of teams that will be crossing the border and will members of the Blue Jays, whether it be... Manager, coaches, staff, players, 
feel comfortable and willing to adhere to strict policies in this city over seven to 10 day periods when they're at home and then relatively strict policies when they're in the United States as well. Cause they're going to be coming. If they ever well, did the come back part. to Toronto this year, they would be coming back and forth every week to week and a half. The tough part is not the teams coming in. I mean, this is the way I see it. I don't think anyone's really looked at it this way. It's not the teams coming in. It's our teams going out, right? It's the Jays going down to whatever state you want and then coming back, right? It's okay to have all these, I guess, restrictions on teams coming in. You go to the airport, you go to Rogers Center, you go into the hotel next to the ballpark, and then you're in for three games or four games and you put a restriction on where guys can go and they leave. But the issue is that if the Jays go to any anywhere else and they're on the road, are those, are there the same restrictions? Right. And I don't, as the Canadian government's not going to impose those restrictions on the Jays when they're in Boston or if they're in, you know, if they're in Tampa or if they're in Denver and then they come back. Right. So I think that's the issue. And that's the issue for me in the way I see it. At least it's not just the teams coming in. It's our guys going down there and back. You ready for, Our next guest, James Deffenbaugh, America's Strongest Man for the year 2017 and the co-inventor of SpiderTech, which unintentionally for him has become one of the sticky substances baseball pitchers are using to doctor balls. We need an event that you and me can compete in for strongest co-host in the morning. Oh, my God. That's what we need. The leadoff. The leadoff strongest. This is a guy you're talking to a guy (laughs) who blew his back out about six weeks ago (laughs) and needed anti-inflams to get back on my feet. And somebody who's never properly addressed my AC joint strain, a sprain in my left shoulder suffered about six years ago. I'm broken Ziggy. I finally slept six hours last night and I almost couldn't get out of bed. My back (laughs) was so sore. So it's usually four or five hours. I got in a solid six. I got up and I couldn't even bend over to. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you did the, not a sentence you wanted to finish there. well i was gonna say like throw my socks on but usually i have to sit down put the leg up on the the side of the better chair there's no more um yeah the simple tasks are tough to do after a six hour night's sleep all right well Wait, i'm sc- lower back's not good. i'm scrolling to find the text so it's always bad to do this live it, it came in much earlier when we were talking about this we have been invited to Barry to compete oh, let's against do it. each other in a strongman an situation. All right, we we need an event. So okay, we do we do three events. I think one has to involve a car, though. Like something, I just want to pull a car, do whatever you have to do, make it go downhill. I don't care. Just I want one of that. That's got to be one of the events. All right. Well, so we will carpool. We'll dig up that text. And uh, then we'll get George Springer on the horn and ask him um, how to handle pulled obliques and pulled quads because it seemed to go so well for him. And that's where we're headed. I'm a quad-dominant athlete. James Deffenbaugh, (laughs) the strongest man in America in 2017 and the co-inventor of SpiderTac, which pitchers are using to doctor baseballs, will join us next.
right, so there's suddenly this crackdown or impending crackdown going on in Major League Baseball, foreign substances on baseball. Sports Illustrated Online had a lengthy investigative piece that was published late last week. Uh, Baseball is sending out memorandum to its teams, and this could affect some of the best pitchers in the game. There are a variety of different substances. One of the ones that is believed to have been being used is something called spider tack. And we have tracked down the co-inventor of spider tack. And I, I don't even know if he knew that pitchers were using this substance to Dr. Balls. Uh, but James Deffenbaugh is good enough to take some time to join us this morning. He was America's strongest man in the year 2017. James, good morning. Thanks for doing this. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm See, well. It's great. It's great to have you on. So start by telling us what spider tack is and what you and others typically have used it for. So it's a super sticky paste that we use for loading Atlas stones and strongman. Atlas stones are the big concrete balls weighing from 300 to 450 pounds. Um, that we generally just load onto platforms. Um, and with that, the hardest part is to grip it. So, you know, we use these adhesives to help grip these big concrete balls so we can, you know, lift more weight in competitions. Okay, so when you lift one of these these boulders, do your hands, like, literally stick to these 300-pound rocks? Like, it, yeah, how does it... It helps the grip a lot. Um, so just like without tacky at all, I mean, you have to squeeze it really, really hard to get enough friction so that you can like lift it off because you can't get your hands all the way around these stones because they're huge. Um, so the tacky just helps that a ton of grip, um, so that we can get it off the ground without, you know, needing to squeeze quite as hard effectively. All right. And what is, what is the substance made out of? Like, what are the ingredients? I, you know, I don't care to talk about the, the, the formula too much, but it's uh, produced rosin polymers and, you know, just the, the right mix of, of adhesives that, that work for our sport. All right. James Deffenbaugh is with us, America's Strongest Man in, in 2017. Did you have any idea, apparently, that some Major League Baseball pitchers have found your spider tack and have, have started to use it? to enhance their grip on baseballs. I, I don't know if you're a baseball fan at all, but this helps to increase the spin rate on their pitches, which obviously make the pitches less hittable. Did you know anything about this? Yeah, I mean, so I've been seeing orders come through. Um, I don't remember when it started, maybe a year or two ago, uh, from, you know, pitchers, from people that were actually ordering spider tack and having delivered straight to the stadium or the clubhouse using the real name, I'd Google these names and they were like, you know, household names or top pitchers. Um, so I knew about it. I did some research. When we first came out with spider tack, we actually did discuss other sports and I looked into it and like baseball wasn't allowed. So I didn't, we didn't push that direction at all. Um, so when I started ordering it, well, still not allowed. So I just kept my mouth shut to fill the orders. Um, and more recently, um, I've talked to a pro pitcher and, and they kind of talked about, how they, they believed it was going to become legal. They thought since everyone was using these adhesives, 
they would just make it officially legal since it was de facto legal for some time. Um, and now it's looking like that that's not happening. It's the, the other direction. How long ago were did you have an idea that teams were were ordering this your product? I, I don't remember when it started, honestly. Um, it was I think it might have been a year ago, it might have been longer. Uh, again, and have you, you, I don't oh, didn't look that closely and it only came apparent when they were using uh real names and, and shipping it to, you know, their team. They have a list their team and the address. And would it be hard to discuss, like if, if a pitcher was going, how hard would it be to throw the product on a, like we had Kevin Barker on our show, he comes on twice a week and he was talking about pitchers can put it underneath their ball cap, inside their glove. How hard would it be? Like, I don't know the substance at all. I, I've never seen the product, but how hard would it be to put on your cap or your glove and use it again? It wouldn't be that, it wouldn't be that hard. It'd be hard to take it off. It wouldn't <laughs> be that hard to, to put it on. Um, if anything, the hardest part might be switching between, you know, the, the sliders and the fastballs, uh, just because, like, they, they want that, that extreme grip for some pitches. Um, they don't want it for all pitches, though. So um, I don't know exactly what strategies they have for, for going back and forth. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, it wouldn't be hard at all to, to, you know, put wherever you need it. All right. So how, how would you describe the effect it has on your fingers when it's on it? Is it like a... a an obvious coating. Like if I, if I had the substance on my index and middle fingers, for example, and I put my thumb to my index and middle fingers, would it, would it stick? Uh, like how? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it'd be stuck yeah, together. Definitely, and and it, part of it depends on how much you use, but you know, in strongman we use a lot more so that you see string between your fingers and thumb. Um, but you can also apply it very thin, so it just creates that, that stickiness, some, some tack that you wouldn't really see unless you're looking really closely. And what, um, what the product, like, has anybody reached out? Like, is it, is it padded? Because I'm curious if they do make it legal in Major League Baseball, if any players have asked you to buy the company, because that's something that <laughs> I, I think about, right? Like, hey, if this is an advantage and the spin rates are are crazy, right? Like they're, they're looking at 25% yeah. increased spin rates. And I'm just wondering, is it, is it like a patent product where no one else can kind of copy it? No, it's not patented. It's, it's a trade secret. Um, we looked into the patent protection, but A, it was way too expensive for us. And B, they could, you know, someone could just modify it slightly and, and mm -hmm. get away with it. it. It didn't seem, you know, being a small business, the patent laws aren't in your favor. Mm -hmm. um, so we're just do, using it as a, a trade secret. James Deffenbaugh is with us on leadoff Sportsnet 590, the fans. So we got to ask while well, we, we've got you on. I mean, career paths are always fascinating, James. What, what did you excel at in high school as, a, as an athlete? Like, I'm wondering how you go from being a little guy, teenager, and then all of a sudden you're one of the strongest people in the world, <laughs> hulking up and lifting 350 to 400-pound boulders for fun. And for competition, you know, I wasn't great at sports. I was, I was like decent at sports, but um, I mostly succeeded academically. Uh, you know, I started. I took calculus in eighth grade. Uh, you know, I graduated early. I was. Um, I won tons of math competitions and and things like that. Um, and I think I kind of went into strongman because that was something that I was not. They did not expect me to be good at. You know, like. 
I was supposed to be the guy that, you know, curing cancer, not winning, you know, national championships and strength. Um, so I, I actually went the, the opposite direction that I think people in high school would expect me to go. So do you just fall in love with the gym or like, how, how does that, how does that even start? Well, I mean, to some extent, I've always appreciated strength. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up on a farm, and I'd always be throwing hay bales as far as I could and, you know, lifting stuff. I think that's kind of just a, a natural thing for a lot of people. It definitely was for me. Um, but I didn't really get into it until um, I was working an IT job. Um, and, you know, it's, it's I, I've always had, you know, great jobs, great coworkers. But working a desk job is, is kind of soul-sucking. So I was looking for an outlet. I was looking for a competitive outlet. Um, you know, something more physical. Um, and one of my coworkers, who was like a six foot six giant, you know, I knew he did strongman. I didn't think that was something that, that normal sized people could do. Um, but he, he invited, he, he sent some pictures out, invited a bunch of us to, to try it at, you know, his garage, um, somewhat sarcastically because it was just a random group. Um, so I, I showed up, I was just wearing jeans and excuse to leave because I didn't know what to expect. Um, but that group, they got me carrying sandbags and kegs and, you know, I was pretty good at it from the start. It was a very different group, different culture. Like half those guys had PhDs or were working their PhDs and, and, uh, I just fell in love with it right away. What's your diet like and how many calories a day are you eating when you're in the midst of trying to bulk up and, and get ready for a competition? So I'm actually a middleweight strongman. Um, so when I won America's Strongest Man, it was in the, the 105 kilo class, the 231 class. Um, so generally, when I'm coming up to a competition, I have to lose weight. Uh, I'm usually walking around 245, 250 pounds. Um, so as I get closer, I'm, I'm cutting at about 3,000 calories to lose, you know, a pound or two a week. Um, when I'm not cutting, I don't keep track too closely, um, but probably around 4,000 calories a day. Ooh, wow. What is the most you've ever lifted at once and what was it whether it was a boulder whether it was a deadlift like what what is the most you've ever actually lifted off the ground at one time well so i mean different movements you can lift different amounts in strongman we, we do a lot of things to make it so you can lift bigger weights it's more impressive like you know car deadlift you're lifting a 3,000 pound car, but it's on a lever, so you're actually only lifting, you know, 700 pounds. Um, the most weight I've lifted in competition was what's called an 18 inch deadlift. So it's a deadlift, but the bar is, you know, 18 inches from the ground, so just below knee height. Um, and in America's Strongest Man in uh, 2018, I lifted uh, 510 kilograms, 1,124 pounds for a 105 kilo world record. Unbelievable. Um, what a fascinating, uh, there's so much more we'd love to ask if we, if we had more time with you, James, um, <laughs> isn't it amazing? Uh, I mean, uh, we always love coming across these strongest man competitions when we see them on TV and it's so eye catching. I mean, just, just the strength that you guys have. And isn't it interesting how you've kind of come into the forefront now because spider tax seems to be such uh, a prevalent substance being used by some pitchers in baseball. Uh, we appreciate your time this morning, and we'll certainly reach out again um, and, and look okay. forward to talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank and you. I appreciate it. James Deffenbaugh, uh, America's Strongest Man in 2017 in the 231-pound weight class, the co-inventor of Spider Tack. 
This dude, the, the 18 the tr- inch deadlift of 1,124 pounds, Ziggy. Yeah, it's crazy. I think I'm like 225. That's nuts. Like, and that's when like- I was in the best shape of my life. And this is just a, the gym, right? This was, I was in the 225, 250 range, I think at tops. Yeah. And at that point, it's negotiable. And you're trying yeah. not to screw your back up. Oh, you probably are screwing your back up. We yeah. just don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> more recent history would tell me I might have. Yeah, but, but the, I mean, the amount of braces and elbow sleeves, knees, back support, taped wrists, like uh, these guys, it's it's crazy. The You know, these people, it's 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 absolutely nuts and now, what they can do. And now this spider tack, I love how he doesn't want to talk about what's in it too, right? And I yeah, read well, the yeah, article. If he's, if, if he's got a trade secret on it, sure. yeah, I was just, I was just wondering, like, if I'm a pitcher and I think this is going to be legalized, you buy the company so no one else can use it. Sure, that's what I would. I mean, if I'd have done, yeah. like you, you, you almost hire that five million, sure, or, or hire them to an exclusive. You produce oh, this yeah. crap for me, and we rock and roll, and don't give it to anybody else. My thing is, like, if a pitcher gets caught with it, what's what's your punishment for you? That's kind of what I've been thinking all morning. We didn't really get to, but. You know, what's we'll the, to, uh, what's the, what's the punishment if, if they do go forward and they actually like, is it banned? Like, is, so substances are banned. And if you get caught, you're ejected out of a game, but you're not suspended. Well, right? you know, you could be suspended. Yeah. You could be subject to okay. suspension. I, I mean, don't know. It's not, I don't know. It's not, it, there's no formal, like uh, first time it's X games, second time, mm. you, you know, it's 80 games. It's a, it's a, it's a full season, et cetera. Like Alex Rodriguez got nicked twice for PEDs. Yeah, I right. understand that. I just didn't know about substances for pitchers, and if you if it is a multiple game suspension, I've just I've never seen it. Right? Yeah, and I think I think that that is up to the disciplinary uh, decision makers in Major League Baseball. They, they could probably nick you for seven games or or whatever, but I don't think that there's any sort of formal layout CBA mm-hmm. negotiated between. Uh, league and and the players union the way that it is with peds or domestic violence or or anything like that our thanks to james deffenbaugh we'll have to come up yeah, that's great we'll have to come we need, up with we a, need a little a little circuit we need no you know what we should do we should have a weak man competition that now it's getting a little too much yeah, for we me, could do okay. a weak man competition <laughs> how little can we lift and all <laughs> we'll figure it out we'll workshop it uh, we are back tomorrow. Adnan Verk, Dan Schulman uh, will be among our guests, uh, as they usually are on a Wednesday. Enjoy your Tuesday. Keep surviving, even though we got to put up with the fact that the Habs are into the semifinals. It's just a soul-crushing, soul-crushing thing. Good shows next. It sucks well, to be a Leafs fan right now.